Hello everyone, this is Ed. I wanted to get behind a live mic before our brand new episode back and just be real with everybody. Um, let's just start from the top and state the obvious. 2023 has not been our year. Uh, we lost a good guy in Sean. Um, it's, it's I don't, I don't know, four, four, four months later I'm still kind of shell-shocked about the whole ordeal. But I don't want that to get in the way of the quality of this show or from the show itself. Not only is this something that Sean would have wanted, but it's something that I feel we should be doing. I feel the show must go on. We had our time to grieve. And now with this episode, I can say with full confidence that we are back. When I say that we are back, I mean no more breaks. Every Tuesday morning, you are going to wake up to a brand new episode of the Film Effect Podcast. Every Friday, you are going to have a brand new episode of Fewer Cast to come home to. Those two are the priority. Tuesdays, Fridays. Remember those days, because from now on, those will be the days that you have brand new episodes. And I'm going to stick to my guns on that as much as I can. And give you guys my word that we are going to hold that as much as we can. There might be a situation or two where something gets in the way and, you know, maybe we're a day late or something. It happens. But no more broken promises. I feel like we've been trying to let you guys know that... We're serious about this schedule, and then something else happens. I mean, in fact, last week I posted how this was going to happen, and here we are two days after the day I said we were going to have a brand new episode, and we're already late. But that aside, okay, there's a a perfectly normal reasoning behind that, which I'm not going to get into. Just know that it's Thursday. Next Tuesday, new episode, 4th of July. It's a big one. We've already got it recorded. I've already started the editing. It's Red Dawn. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. Me, Justin, and a mystery person um, who's been on the show before sat down and not revealing his name because there's a reason for that, which you will find out sooner than later. Other than that, enjoy this episode. This is our big Pride Month episode. Sorry it's so late, but we wanted to get it to you. It's a very important episode to me because I'm a big... I'm a big believer that this is one of the finest films of the last decade. I really have been a big supporter and fan of this movie that we're about to talk about today. And it means a lot to me that you guys enjoy it for more reasons than one. So without further ado, here's the new episode, Behind the Candelabra. We're back. We love you guys. Let's get to the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the star of the show, the man who's famous throughout the world, for his candelabra and his piano, Mr. Showmanship Liberace.
boogie is so strange and when he calls for an explanation is called a boogie woogie break. And when I'm playing it and I stop at a certain point, you're gonna think that I forgot the music. But I didn't forget the music. There's just no music written for that part. That's why they call it a break. something. Suppose only the ladies in the audience this time, okay? All the girls together. Hey! Oh, that was terrific. Okay, fellas, it's your turn now. Hello out there and welcome back to an all new episode of the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full effect deep dives for the Film Effect Archive. Each week you bring us a movie and we'll provide a breakdown like none other. Nothing's off limits on this podcast, so you're going to get the full scene-by-scene, play-by-play on top of our opinionated commentary on everything from the reason certain actors signed on to be in the film to the reason lead actor B decided to wear size 12 Pumas instead of size 13 Adidas. And with this edition of the show, we're going to take things back to exactly 10 years ago when director Steven Soderbergh was winding down his career and calling it a day with two films. The very bizarre side effects with Shannon Tatum and Rooney Mara and the HBO film that we're about to break down today. That said, I'm Ed. And I'm back. It's me, Corey. And this is Behind the Candelabra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Liberace. This is my friend, Scott Thorson. You are incredible out there. Well, this must be fate. I have a great idea. Why don't you come work for me? As what? I want to be everything to you, Scott. I want to be father, brother, lover, best friend. I'll do whatever you want. I want you to make Scott look like this. You will make me feel so young. Why would a grown man want to adopt another grown man? So we can be family. All I do is give and give and give. I can't live like this. You're being paranoid, Scott. Are you still? I'm not. I'm upset. Don't change the subject. I don't even have my own face.
Behind the Candelabra is a made-for-HBO feature film that chronicles the tempestuous six-year romance between megastar singer Liberace and his young lover, Scott Thorson. So let me just start off by first saying Happy Pride Month, everyone. Yeah. If you've been a listener since the early days of the uh, podcast, and you know how much of a supporter I am of the LGBTQ community, a community in which my own daughter is a part of. Every year in June, we do exclusive Pride Month designs for sale in the merch store with half the profits going towards our favorite LGBTQ communities and charities. And to be dead honest, I'm a really big fan of this film. It's it's a movie I often revisit every couple years or so because I've always enjoyed the story between these two self-indulging lovers told from the very beginning. And I really love the back and forth between Michael Douglas and Matt Damon and what Soderbergh brings to... Uh, or what he does to enhance this otherwise cliche love story um, into the unique tale of manipulation that it really is on the inside of everything. And this one definitely brings the emotion factor up from what you'd expect from a movie of this caliber. But that out of the way, welcome back, Corey, man. What's going on, brother? How have you been? What's going on? And uh, how... uh, where are you at on this movie yourself? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, without going into details, had some personal stuff I've been dealing with, but uh, everything's kind of settled down. So, um, you know, glad to be back. Uh, we'll be mm-hmm. back on a regular schedule now. Um, but yeah, the film, I love this movie. I, I watched it on its debut night, that Saturday night, 10 years ago. Uh, and I loved it. I mean, HBO to me has always been a mainstay. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, and we first got, uh, they called it the hot box, you know, the cheat box where you get all the pay channels for free. Oh, yeah. And I was probably eight or nine. And that was the first time I ever had the premium pay channels in HBO. And ever since then, I've just been glued to HBO wherever I've lived, wherever I've been. HBO has always been in my channel lineup just because to me, it's always been worth it. It's always been worth the 10 or $12 a month or whatever it's always costed and because it's hbo yeah it's hbo there's a reason they make quality content you know it used to be more movies now more tv shows but in series but uh this film is no exception I, I i've always loved the movie uh you know obviously i had a little bit of background knowledge on liberace you know i i think anybody born you know probably in the 80s or before obviously it was liberace one of the most famous performers of all time from that era and you know i always found the story interesting you know i didn't know the details between you know his life but it just always mesmerized me how a man as flamboyant as liberace uh sold himself as straight through all those years so it just always interested me so i, I really love watching the movie and getting a more in-depth uh knowledge of everything that happened so yeah I- i've always been a big fan it- it's another one i always watch as well i own it physically uh, it's a good film. Oh, yeah. First time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. HBO, definitely. Uh, when this first premiered, Memorial Day weekend, 2013, I was actually... Um, because it was that Saturday or Sunday it premiered, and I was at the um, or I was at a Memorial Day uh, cookout with my exes, the, like a family gathering, friends and fr- friends and family, 
And I remember leaving there and going from that cookout to uh, the, the apartment we lived at. There was a Bill Bateman's restaurant um, behind it, the complex in walking distance. So me and another guy from the, the cookout were ended up over there uh, back when I did drink. Uh, just, you know, closing down the bar. And then I remember coming home at like, you know, midnight and... For whatever reason, like that was one of the first things that came to my mind was behind the candelabra because I DVR'd it and I started to watch it, got a little woozy because I was pretty knocked back. And then I remember waking up the next morning and I was off work because it was the holiday and I finished it and I pretty much watched it from scratch. I, just, I probably just restarted it. But uh, yeah, that weekend, man, uh, it was a big deal. I've been looking forward to seeing the film for a while. Uh, I was a big, I still am a uh, pretty big Soderbergh fan. And I knew at the time that this was supposed to be his final film. And not only that, I wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and bullshit the audience and pretend like I was like a big, you know, a person with knowledge of Liberace. I knew of him, didn't know anything about his personal life. I knew he was like Wayne Newton in a sense that he was a Vegas performer. And then, then there was this love story that was pretty big, a lot bigger than I would have ever thought because I you know, up until this film, had no idea who the fuck Scott Thorson was, and I would just assume that, like, Matt Damon was playing some Liberace mega fan who fell into his, you know, wisdom or whatever, but, uh, yeah, it turns out it was a pretty, pretty big story in the 80s, so, um, or 70s and the 80s, but, um, hell of a story, looking forward to talking about it, um, yeah, but before we get into it, um, story time. Tell me a story. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So, this was Soderbergh, like I mentioned... Like a weird retirement. This was a time when he was kind of like, we're kind of dealing with something similar right now, Tarantino. In a sense that Tarantino has always been open to about 10 films and he's done, obviously, his last film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was film number nine. And now we're here talking slowly about the events that leading up to number 10, The Critic, or whatever it's called, his final film per se. And Soderbergh was kind of doing the same thing, although his was different. He didn't have like a big countdown like like Tarantino. He just kind of up out of the blue, like a year before this, was like, "Oh yeah, I'm doing two more movies next year, and then I'm done." <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a soft, quiet retirement that didn't last long at all. I mean, he came back like. I know Lucky Logan was his was his big comeback film. And when was that? 2017? So what was his retirement? Four years? That was the duration of it? Yeah. So we're talking about a four-year retirement. You know, it's nothing really massive. It's, it's, it's more of a hiatus. It's nothing to take seriously. But, um... I, but I do remember at the time how, like, it was a big deal. All the, all the outlets were talking about it. And, you know, and... He had two movies in 2013. He had a theatrical film, Side side Effects, that came out in February. And then he had this that was made for HBO. And it was dubbed as the last film. Kind of like Phantom Thread, next week's film. Talking about that, Dan Day-Lewis. 
But um, yeah, man, you want to chime in on this? Yeah, it, it it is just funny. Like you're talking about retirement, and then like literally <laughs> a few years back, like he's just pumping out movies, like because he's done some good movies recently, like that uh, Kimmy movie um, with Zoe Kravitz. That was a pretty good movie. I, that was an enjoyable thrill. I gotta get around to that. I keep hearing great things. I just haven't watched it. Yeah, that that surprised me. I really didn't expect to like it as much as I did, but it was really solid. And uh, No Sudden Move was pretty good too. Like, yeah, I, I did like that. Although I thought I was going to like it more than I did, but I still, you know, in the end, still enjoyed it. Yeah, like Logan Lucky. I mean, he's had some good movies come out since, you know, his quote unquote retirement. So it, it is kind of funny uh, thinking back to that time because I do remember it uh, like you were saying. Uh, yeah, but I've always been a Soderbergh fan. I, I, I really enjoy yeah. Side Effects is a good film, too. Like, I, to me, that's an underrated one. It's a one. weird film. I it, saw that with Sean. It's definitely weird, but, uh, and then, um, uh, previous episode, uh, with you and Sean, Contagion, that's, you know, like. Oh, I love Contagion. Like, it's just such a, like, realistic, uh, like, take on the uh, whole pandemic idea. And probably one of my favorite comedic Matt Damon performances he directed, The Informant. That movie is hilarious. I love the Yeah, Informant. I saw Matt that Damon, in the theater. It is he is great in that film. It, mm-hmm. it like I just chuckled to myself the whole time just watching Matt Damon be a buffoon. Uh, I really enjoy that. So I'm a huge Soderbergh fan, and you know, I, I love this movie. I think this movie's one of his uh finer works. So yeah, I'm glad he didn't retire. I'm glad he didn't hang it up after this. You know, it's funny the law. I've been pretty open for the last decade or so since the first one came out, but I've been pretty upfront about being a Magic Mike fan. And I also like Magic Mike XXL. And it's funny because while we're on the topic of Soderbergh, this past year, like a couple months ago, he did the third film, the Magic Mike's Last Dance or whatever it was. Um, And I just, for whatever reason, don't give a fuck about that movie. No one did. I'm a big fan of the first two (laughs) movies, but like this one just came out of nowhere I remember it was supposed to be an HBO film, like kind of like this, back when HBO was like, you know, since the pandemic, they were claiming a lot of films for their, you know, Mac service, and Evil Dead was one of them as well, House Party, but then they ended up getting, like, someone else came in to HBO, and these films suddenly were pushed back, and then they got theatrical releases, and that's what happened with Magic Mike, but yeah, I just... Even when I saw the initial trailer for that movie, I just did not care. I didn't have a care in the world. Like I, I to me, Mike's journey ended in the second film, and I just this is just like, why are we doing this? You know? Yeah, I saw the first one. I remember it was pretty. It was better than a movie like that had any right to be. I, I never saw the sequel though, but I I did respect the first one. I love seeing Kevin Nash in there, big sexy yeah, oh, himself. Yeah. He's great. He's great. Uh, tell me something. Did you ever see Unsane, the film that was made on an iPhone? That he no, did? I heard about that one. That yeah, that was like his experimental phase. Yeah, because mm-hmm. Matt I never Damon actually it. pops up in the in the movie as a little cameo. Because like he did that, and then like he did like that Sasha Gray movie too around the same time, right? The girlfriend experience where like was that, that a show on Stars though? It was a show. Okay. I, I, I thought that was a show. It might have been I, a I show. I could be wrong. I thought it was a short movie, but I, it could have been a show too. I, I remember he was doing experimental type stuff. It's a show. There. I saw it. Yeah, it's a show on stars. Okay. Gotcha. Well, yeah. He's, he's the EP on that. Okay. Gotcha. But yeah, I and never seen the, the Nick. That's like, cause he went in the retirement. 
And then he didn't do any films, but he but because because it was also a, a play on words. Like he had to be careful of what he said. He retired from filmmaking, but that didn't stop him from doing the Nick a year afterwards. That was a Cinemax series with um, uh, Clive Owen. Yeah, that he directed, but that wasn't a movie. So he retired, but he uh, retired just, from film. It's just one of those things. That I'm like, why put yourself in that box? Like, if if you know you're gonna want to work, like, why even dude, say that? I, I guarantee you, his publicist or whoever was like, "You got to play this up, man. We got to get people talking about you." You know, it's all about whose eyes are on you at what moment. You got you'll do whatever. I've noticed over like all the years of my life being in the film and, and, and movie and entertainment in general. Like, there's one thing a star will do for you know just eyes on them it's anything really so doesn't surprise me yeah but anyway before we get into the film at bay here let's do our pre-dive top five rob it's your turn okay i'm feeling kind of basic today top five side ones track ones janie jones clash from the clash mm. let's get it on marvin Gaye from let's get it on Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation. All right, let's do our favorite HBO movies. When I say HBO movies, I'm not saying that that production company HBO Films from the 90s I'm talking about movies that were made and premiered for the network that premiered on HBO the whole nine so movies like Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead like that doesn't count because that was HBO Films Serial Mom yeah another one HBO Films it did not premiere on HBO so I know you and I talked about this prior to this but I'm talking to the audience right now yeah anyway that being said uh, my honorable mentions I got a few uh, recount mainly because I'm not 100% sure if I've seen this movie all the way through. I know I have started it, but I'm not <laughs> sure if I've finished it. And it has been a long time since I, I remember Dennis Leary was in it, a bunch of other people were also in it. And I remember thinking it was okay, so you know, honorable mention just because. But the other two I have seen, and yes, they deserve to be here. I'm not on my top five. First one is Stepfather Part 3. Ah, the yeah. Conclusion to the Stepfather trilogy. Baby, yes, I remember that premiere on HBO. Um, and it was also, they got rid of um, our boy, what's it, uh, Ter- Terry O'Malley. Terry O'Quinn. Terry O'Quinn. Oh, my Terry gosh. Quinn. He makes those first two movies. Oh, oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. He is so awesome. And I don't know what run of the mill guy they got for the third film, but it just it wasn't it wasn't jiving with me, you know. So it had an early ending. I mean, they de- they definitely finished the character off once and for all. I do end. not even Fuck. remember that movie. I, I threw him into a wood chipper. I so. remember the shitty fucking remake. Oh god, that thing was terrible. Oh, uh, uh, Dylan Dar- Walsh. D- Dylan Walsh. Dylan Walsh. Nick yeah. Tuck. Yeah, that Congo. movie. That movie was bad. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah. I was hoping a fucking monkey came and ripped them apart. <laughs> and the other film was a um, pretty gnarly concept. Wish the execution was better. It was a werewolf um, uh, cop film called Full Eclipse that had Mario Van, Mario Van Peebles, uh, uh, Patty Jensen. No, 
ah, oh, what the hell is her name? Yeah, that might be her name, Patty Jensen, from uh, Lethal Weapon Two. She's an Irish actress. Never seen um, it. No, I'm pulling it up right now. Um, I've seen yeah, Lethal Patsy Weapon Kenton. Two. Patsy Kenton, that's her name. It was an <laughs> Anthony Hickox movie. Seen Lethal Weapon Two, not uh, Full Eclipse, the movie you're well, talking about. The person I I, I butchered name. I even forgot what I called her. Pat Patsy Kenton. I think I just fucked it up again. <laughs> no, I didn't. Pat Patsy Kenton. Patsy Kensett was the, the 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 Irish girl that um, Mel Gibson like falls in love with, and she ends up drowning. Yeah. They, oh they, shit. He finds her underwater. Yeah, I forgot about. Yeah, that. she's in it in Mario Van Peebles, and uh, a, a slew of other people. But uh, it was made for HBO, and uh, Dean Norris is also in it. But he was in a lot of those '90s action films. So those are my honorable mentions. Number five. Speaking of part threes, Maniac Cop three. Badge of Silence, which <laughs> I actually just watched last weekend because I kind of fucked up and I, I added it to my. I found a pretty good uh, used copy, a pretty good priced used copy on um, not eBay, Mercari, and I had it in my shopping cart. And I was looking for the second one on four. I, I should also emphasize it, this, these are the four K versions that Blue on the Ground put out, and. I couldn't find a good price part two and I was going, I had a bunch of other films in my shopping cart and I was messing around and not thinking straight and I accidentally hit purchase. <laughs> so I wasn't ready for that. And, um, like I ain't got many I mean, top I, one or two. I, I didn't even use the zip option for the, the, to make the payment in the four increments. I just fucking just all in full. So I was like, Oh shit. So I was able to cancel two of them because it was three transactions total between, it was four items between three people. So, no. Yeah. So two of them I got canceled. The other one that had Maniac Cop 3, the guy was like, well, why do you want to cancel? And, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, you know what? The other two orders canceled. I'm not a cheapskate. I owe it to myself. I'm like, never mind, man. Pretend this message never happened. I'm going to keep it. Send it to me. Payment goes through. And I have a 4K copy of Maniac Cop 3. <laughs> so I'm still on the lookout for part two. Part one has not been put out on 4K yet for whatever reason. Yeah, it's still I, on Blu-ray. I have it on Blu- I have them all on Blu-ray. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, part three. Um, and you know, it's a lot better than I remember it being. Um, they're all pretty good. Yeah, I like Yeah, Maniac I was going to say, they're all pretty good, to be honest with you. If I had to throw one under the bus out of all three of them, it's going to be the first one. I'm not the biggest fan of Maniac Cop 1. I mean, I like it. It's fine. But, you know, two is miles better. Two's the best one. Yeah, two's the best. And I think three is a worthy follow-up to part two. So, and then it's got Robert Dobby. So, can't complain. And it has a bunch. It's got Robert Foster and a slew of other people that pop up for like a scene or two. Like Jackie Earl Haley. So, anyway. um, How about you? Alright, well, I, I'm cheating. I know we talked about it, but I, in my honorable mentions, I'm going to bring up Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, just because oh. I love that movie so much. I know it didn't premiere on HBO. I know it was a theatrical, but uh, I just love that movie. I, and after it came oh, yeah. out on HBO, that was one of those movies that I would just have on constantly. Like, when it, um, mm-hmm. you know, after it was it got its video release and came, it hit, hit HBO... Oh my gosh, it was on constantly, watched it all the time. I would start watching it in the middle of the movie, end of the movie, beginning of the movie. Uh, I had such a cr- <laughs> uh, crush on Christina Applegate, too, from uh, especially that and Married with Children. So, yeah, I 
I had such a good time watching that movie. I, I had to put it on my honorable mention. Um, and then my other one is Quick and the Dead. Um, uh, Sam Raimi film, actually. I think underrated Western. Um, Wait, what? That that was on my list. It wasn't on... That's Why on was it on your list, though? Oh. That was a Columbia movie. Oh, really? Hmm? Maybe the list I was looking at was bad. That I mean, most of them. But because <laughs> that's another one. That's another one. Well, quick and the I dead. swear I was that was theatrical, brother. That was Columbia TriStar put that movie oh, out. I never saw it in theaters. I never remember being in mm. theaters. I remember mm. my memories of Quick and the Dead are on HBO. I always assumed it was an okay. HBO movie. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, they, they did have a license for HBO film. Columbia movies would be on HBO back in the '90s, but as far as premieres go, no, it was theatrical and everything. That was a big release. Uh, that was my mistake. But anyway, no, you're good. <laughs> Shit, I was like, uh, wait a minute, what? <laughs> underrated Western, yeah. It, I, I didn't even It is, know it. it is. I, ne- I didn't even I'm remember. I'm glad you brought it, it up. Theaters. But uh, yeah, I like it. I'm not a huge uh, Sharon Stone fan, but she was good in that movie. I, I, she played her part Trust well. Trust me, brah. I ain't watching it for her. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, no Gene, Hack- Gene Hackman is fucking awesome. Is the big bad. Hackman. Yeah, um, Leo DiCaprio. Uh, DiCaprio, uh, Russell Crowe. It's uh, a Sam Lance Raimi Hendrickson. film. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Lance Hendrickson. Yeah, there's... Star-studded cast, fun movie. Apparently, it was in theaters that I didn't even know about. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have memories of it on HBO. <laughs> uh, fair enough. All right. Well, then we'll know. Um, no, you're still in your honorable mentions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My bad. And then, um, so my number five is actually a movie that just came out uh, during the pandemic. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. I think that kind of is the reason it got swept under the rug, and that's Bad Education. Um, for huh? anybody who doesn't, uh, uh, what's Hugh, Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. yeah, Hugh Jackman. Um, it is his movie through and through. Awesome film. So uh, I didn't know anything about it. I just saw the previews for it when it was coming out. True story. And it's a true story, and it's about this huge embezzlement scam um, that happened in New York and New Jersey's um, public school system. Hugh Jackman is uh, a closeted gay principal in the area, and him and his assistant, um, I forget her name. I, I think her name's Pam, but uh, played by Allison uh, Janney, who is just fucking awesome. I mean, she steals the show in that whole movie. Allison Janney, oh my gosh, she is so great as like the slimy assistant. Um, she has like this cr- like crazy car, crazy house. Like her and Hugh Jackman, they are just embezzling every penny from this school. Oh yeah, it's and ridiculous. It's crazy. Like, and the whole reason <laughs> this gets caught is not because like a reporter starts, like you know, like the New York Times starts investigating. It's because um, Allison Jenny's character has like a dumb nephew or something who's doing repairs on her million dollar beach home, and uses a school public school credit card to go buy supplies, like in yep. upstate rich New York. And that's what brings it all down. And then the school paper starts investigating and everything just falls down. It, it's so hilarious. I I love Allison Janney in this. I mean, she was great in The Help, too, but uh, she steals the show in this film. and She's wonderful. And uh, Ray Romano plays uh, really good, like, PTA dad type. He, he's really great at that type of role. And he's really funny as well. Uh, but yeah, great film. I, I've watched it actually a couple times during the pandemic. Um, I felt like it got kind of lost in the shuffle because of that. Uh, but it's definitely worth the rewatch. It, it's one of those like just it feels so crazy. It can't be true, but it is true because it all really happened. One of my favorite 
actually it is my favorite Alice and Janney role of the last oh yeah like decade is uh um Tanya oh Tanya what the hell is it called Tanya I Tanya oh my Val's brother oh Tanya like it's it's Canadian you know oh Tanya I Tanya um man what a movie. I always get Goodfellas vibes every time I watch that movie, but Alice and Janney in that movie is just fucking great. So, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, oh, and um, what's her name? Um, and McKenna Grace plays uh, young uh, Tanya Harding in that movie too. So, oh yeah, that was that was back when McKenna Grace was like the go-to girl like actor in Hollywood to like make a younger version of a character in big movies. Like, I know she played a younger version of uh, someone from one of the Conjuring movies. She's a younger version of Tanya Harding and I, Tanya. Oh, Tanya. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, number four for me, though, is going to be The Light Shift, about the uh, the, the, ninth, the the early 90s, The Tonight Show Wars, uh, after Johnny Carson retired. There was a big war between David Letterman and Jay Leno as to who was going to be the next host of The Tonight Show. Obviously, we know who won. Uh, but back in the early 90s, it started in like the late 80s. It went on for a while, um, and they made a great film out of it. Daniel Roebuck plays Jay Leno. Yeah, he did a great he, job. I, I yeah, remember. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big Daniel Roebuck fan. Like, I'm, He's one of the most underrated actors of the last like 30 years or so he's hinky boss a little hinky (laughs) i mean that's the only thing i remember from him in the fugitive he's hinky boss hinky the fucking fugitive that's right (laughs) and he's also in uh money talks charlie sheen and chris tucker and of course he's in a bunch of rob zombie movies um robot was all speaking of rob zombie the monsters he did a good job he's a great actor yeah, he did huh? a good job. Yeah, he did. He did. And um there's so many movies. I mean, Christ, fucking dudes. Him and John Cryer. Uh, fucking Penelope Penelope Fierce. It's uh, um there's Fierce. It's uh, so many movies that he's in. Anyway, back to the conversation at Bay. Uh Late Shift. Uh great film. Yeah. Um have you ever seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. I it didn't pop into my head for one of my favorites, but yeah, it was enjoyable. I, I knew the whole story that there was a big battle uh, uh-huh. for the night. Uh, the oh, by the way, it was John Michael Higgins played David Letterman. Yeah, and, and both of them did a great job. Like uh, I think especially Roebuck, I, I, he sticks in my mind more than anything else in that movie. Same. But um, it was really good. Yeah, it was interesting hearing about it because... Uh, you know, as a kid, that's what I grew up with was, uh, you know, you the same, Letterman and Leno. They were mm-hmm. both entrenched by the time we were old enough to start watching. So, yeah, it was interesting uh, seeing the behind-the-scenes story because I knew there was, like, a falling out, and that's why they each had their own separate well, shows. Leno was so close to Carson, too, so it was almost like, you know, he was a shoe in for the position, but Letterman was just so popular. Yeah. And it, there was that big war between the two of them. It was just... Phew, just worked out yeah and then i i always was mad at leno too just because like the whole thing they have with conan because i've always been a huge conan fan um you know i, I sort of this day don't feel like that was leno's fault i feel like people wanted to put the blame on him for that like he was like 
behind all of that, like, winning his job and shit. But it's still no, I don't, and I think that's the impression a lot of people give. Like, like he he was like behind all of it, like you know, behind the scenes, like, ooh, it's gonna be back, it's gonna be mine again, you know, like, nah, dude. Yeah, it it was just he's. I think he's innocent when it comes to that shit that happened. Yeah, I I I agree, and you know I respect Leno. He's a car guy, so like he has a special place oh, yeah. in my heart. He he had like Super I love sad what happened to him last year. Yeah, I I know. I heard about that. That was crazy. The whole fire thing. I mean, luckily yeah. he's all right now and shit. I've seen him on a. Uh, he was just just on a podcast, a video uh, podcast recently. And he looks pretty good, all things considered. So. Good for him. But yeah, it, it was a good movie. I, I liked, uh, I, I, I forget what the title is now, but yeah, I liked the whole Late <laughs> The Late Shift. Yeah, it was good. All right. All right. Number four for you? All right. So my number four is an actual HBO premiere all movie. Right. I know for 100% it is. Um, and that's the Billy Crystal movie, 61. Um, I'm a huge okay. sports movie fan. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so this one is awesome. It's a, basically a retelling or not a retelling, but a telling of the true events that happened with Roger Maris, uh, back in the sixties, breaking Babe Ruth's 60 home run record hitting 61. Um, and it was just very interesting. Uh, Barry Pepper plays Roger Maris. Um, you have Thomas Jane as Mickey Mantle in there. You have a bunch of other, uh, big actors and cameos. Uh, but yeah, Barry Pepper's great. Like, I, it, it's just interesting. Dude, Barry Pepper's so great in everything he's in. Yeah, it's just so interesting. Like, he's just this great ball player, like Roger Maris, and you know, he's getting all this scrutiny from New York because nobody wanted him to break the record that the Babe had. You know, everybody was rooting against him. Like, you know, his family life was falling apart. People love the Babe. Yeah, and Barry Pepper just they didn't want to see it happen. Yeah, and Barry Pepper just did a great job, and it it, it was just super interesting learning about all that because I, I knew about the asterisk because for a long time his record had an asterisk because he hit 61 yeah. home runs in a season but it was more games than Babe Ruth played so they put an asterisk which to me is like nonsensical it was like three That's games kind of mostly because rules change all the time yeah it was not rule but seasons and all like they don't deal with football because no. now they got football expanded. You don't see fucking asterisks next to fucking numbers now that but people that break records, you don't see that shit. No, and it was just... Because even the title of the movie has an asterisk. It's, it's how it petty it is. It does, and it was just a way to cheapen his uh, record. Because, like, literally, I think he hit the 61st home run three games. It was something crazy. It was only a few games after the babe hit his. Right. So it, it was just interesting. And then now at least he gets more... He gets recognition. Now, obviously, that... That record has been shattered, but uh, there's no more oh. asterisk. Like he, he gets his recognition, and you know Roger Maris he was a hell of a baseball player. I mean, it, it was just very interesting. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was cool seeing like Billy Crystal talk about it uh, too, because you know he's such a New York um, Yankees fan. So uh, it was really interesting seeing his passion behind the whole thing and seeing him behind the camera. So yeah, 61's always had a soft place in my heart. I, I revisit it every once in a while. All right. Final three, top three. We're getting the cream of the crop now with these picks. This was hard too, believe me. All right, number three. So close between these three movies. All right, I had to pick one. Had to be three. And number three for me is Deadwood. Now, love the show. Oh, Fucking yeah. love the show. And I love this movie. This movie legitimately made me weep at the end 
for the last fucking t- the last thing you hear is you know um, the the prayer and with uh, the 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 dying and McShane on the bed and oh my god, let him fucking stay. Perfect fucking way to end the movie or end end it all. You know, it was super sad, but it was fitting, bittersweet. I just remember watching that the 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 night it premiered and. That was just, I had so many emotions going through me at that final moment that the movie was just bravo. Bra-fucking-vo. I love this movie so much. Um, like I said, between these final three f- the films that I have on my list, this was so hard. I uh, wish it was higher, but the other two are just so damn good as well, which I'm about to get to. But for now, number three is Deadwood. Yeah, definitely a good one. Um, so my number three is definitely a more obscure HBO movie, but uh, it's one that I remember when it first premiered and I just always watched it. Um, and that's American Splendor. Um, I think I've talked about it before. I think I recommended it at some point um, on one of the fewer cast episodes. Uh, but American Splendor, for people who don't know, is the story of uh, Harvey Picard, um, an underground comic book uh, artist and writer. And uh, he Jim did American yeah, played by Paul Giamatti, which I love Giamatti, one of my all-time favorite actors, and it, it he pulls a great performance in this movie. I mean, just awesome. Like, he just embodies Picard. Like, I, you know, just seeing uh, interviews with, like, the real-life Harvey Picard and then watching Paul Giamatti play him, I mean, it's just, like, spot on. So it, it's just really great. Uh, but the movie just follows. He's an underbook comic book. Uh, artist, you know, publishing comics and I, I forget the exact decade but like the 70s and 80s uh, mm-hmm. and it's American Splendor and it's just I've always like really liked the aesthetic like just that ugly underground aesthetic and the writing, it just has that dry, cynic uh, type wit and I, I've just always really enjoyed I actually went back and read some of the trades of American Splendor and it, they legitimately are funny like Harvey Bacar, like just an oddball guy. Like you can tell he's just stuck in like bureaucracy hell, like just thinking of the same type stuff I think of and just has the same sense of humor. But yeah, the movie's just, it's just a low key fun little movie. Like it, it, you, you watch it for Paul Giamatti's performance and just finding out more about American oh, yeah. Splendor. It's just one I would watch constantly. I own it physically now. It's just, I, I revisit it every once in a while. It's just, one that always had a soft spot in my heart because I went into a blind. Before this movie, I had no idea who Harvey Picard was. I had no idea what American Splendor was. I just started watching it because I was like, yeah, hey, it's Paul Giamatti on there. I'll watch this. And then I started yeah. watching it. It sucked right. me right in. Like, the movie has a good style. It mixes, the, the film mixes, like, the comic book uh, art in with the movie. It has Harvey Picard, the real Harvey Picard in the movie. It's really interesting. It's a really good movie. Even if you have no interest in American Splendor prior, I think it, it, it it's good enough to hold uh, just a general viewer's interest, I think. It's a really cool movie. It's it's a wonderful film. It really is. Um, unfortunately, it came out theatrically. I don't care. Um, that's an HBO movie. I'm called, that is an HBO movie. It I, was originally supposed to be on HBO, but then 9-11 happened and things changed. So, um, yeah. 
You probably got this from the same list as the other one that you had. No, on there. I didn't. But even you know have what? We're gonna that allow it. List. That was an HBO movie through and through. Like they might. I mean, they produced it, yes, but it didn't. It didn't premiere on the network. Though it came out in theaters, it actually made almost fucking ten times or almost uh, five times its budget. So <laughs> it's not a Columbia movie, goddammit. it. No, it wasn't. It was an HBO film. <laughs> so, anywho, uh, all right, number two. So hard. Game change. Another one that I fucking love is almost as much as my number one. Um, you ever seen it? I'm sure you've seen it. Game change. What? What's the movie? Game change. It's the one with uh, Julianne Moore, Sarah Palin, and Woody Harrelson oh, as yeah, uh, yeah, Steve yeah. Schmidt. Yep, I've seen it. Yep, that was a good one. Ed yeah. Harris is McCain. Yeah, it's pretty. <laughs> it just I makes love that me movie. shake my head watching that movie. Yeah. Oh God! Just because Sarah Palin, everything you see that happened behind the scenes, that you know, everything that she put them through. Oh yeah! Holy shit! And the movie's just wonderful. She's a spitting image of of Sarah Palin. I mean, the makeup effects of people that that did Julianne Moore, they really nailed it. Um. Yeah, it's just a great film overall. It's one of the, it's another one that I remember because this premiered a year before the um, uh, the film we're talking about today, and it just just like uh, Candelabra, I can watch this movie like, and I do. I, fr- I frequent it, you know, once just like Candelabra. I said at the beginning, I I watch it like once every couple of years. It's it's really good. In fact, I just watched it you know, about five six months ago around. The last election, the last election season is when I watched it. So, great film, so good. Like again, like I've said it enough, I'll say it one more time. So hard for this top three, but number two is Game Change. How about you? Uh, my number two is the film we're about to talk about, uh, Candelabra. I love the movie. Think it has a Oscar worthy performances, and that's about all I'm going to say right now. Yeah, I'm going to leave it at that myself. Number one, Behind the Candle, fucking Abra. Um, I adore this movie. We're gonna get into it soon, Corey. Though back at you, what is your number one? Well, since it's not this, my number one, and I picked this number one not because I think it's a better movie than necessarily like Candelabra or American Splendor, just because to me it's so synonymous with HBO, and that's Deadwood the movie. That's my number one, just because Deadwood. Yeah, to me, it's boy. one of those series. It's up there with like. Tales from the Crypt. It's just like synonymous with HBO. And I think HBO, especially, you know, like 15, 20, 30 years ago, you know, through that when I was younger, like I think of Tales from the Crypt when I was really young. And then when I was a little bit older, I think of Deadwood. Uh, you know, I love Timothy Oliphant. He's one of my favorite actors. Like I, yeah. and obviously Ian McShane like steals the show every, every scene he's in, in the entire series, he steals the show. But uh, yeah, Deadwood, one of my favorite all-time series, uh, definitely one of my favorite HBO series. So yeah, am I going to say the movie's like a masterpiece Academy Award winner to be my number one? No, but since the list is HBO movies, that's definitely my top HBO movie. Like if you told me I had one to pick, that it would be Deadwood the movie. I, I was right there with you. I was so emotional watching it, like just... Anytime you get to go back and see like old characters that feels like family, I'm mm-hmm. down for it. So I was so happy when they did the movie and I, I love Deadwood so much. So the movie was so awesome. Fun fact. 
I watched the show for the very first time a week before the movie premiered. Oh, so you had a different experience. So I, I, yeah, yeah. I, went, I binged it leading up to the film's premiere. I binged it. Yeah, see, I... But I felt, I felt it though, Corey. Like, I swear, like, I know how long you guys, the true fans who watched it in the beginning, I know long, I know how long you guys waited. And I know how HBO treated you guys at the end of the show, at the end of the third season and everything. Yeah, it's just Even before seasons two and three, in between that, there was some shit going on. But after three, it all just went kind of quiet and then suddenly nowhere. And then this movie comes at you like what 15 years later or something like that like and and, like it's 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 such you know a treat to see you know what these people have been up to and what's gonna happen especially since the end of season three is so massive and it's like what the fuck and for them to make up for it which they do with this movie it's it it's it's telling it's it says something and i felt i was right there with you like i felt like i was a long time fan myself because like i felt every bit of emotion like i've been watching it since the beginning at the end when he's in the bed and they're doing the prayer together yeah oh my god that fucking moment jesus yeah and like see deadwood is like there's a couple shows that have scarred me throughout time deadwood's one of them um firefly was one of them just firefly. like firefly just like certain shows that i love so much and just get treated dirty and like it, it almost makes he like and i speak not just for myself but for a lot of fans it almost makes you not want to get into things because you're like you know yeah, how are they just gonna ruin them? them you know like right. it's just like i can understand they need to make money and shows need to be profitable but you know, do it in a halfway decent way of ending something. <laughs> it's like, come on. No, I agree. I agree. Wholeheartedly, I agree. So, alright. Let's talk about the film. So, in a January of 2013 interview with the New York Post, Steven Soderbergh said that the film was originally intended for a theatrical release, but was ultimately produced by and aired on HBO instead because the story was seen as quote-unquote too gay by all the major Hollywood studios. He said nobody would make it. We went to everybody in town. They all said it was too gay. And this is after Brokeback Mountain, by the way, which is not as funny as this movie. I was stunned. It made no sense to any of us. Despite this, the film was selected to compete for the Palme d'Or at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival, where it received its worldwide premiere. It was also theatrically released in Europe and the rest of the world, but in the U.S. domestically, it premiered on HBO without getting a theatrical release. During its premiere, it was watched by 3.5 million people. This was HBO's highest rating for an original film since 2004. In May of 2013, the New York Times also reported that Scott Thorson, in real life, received a a little less than 10 grand, I'm sorry, 100 grand, for his participation with this movie, and that he spent all the money in about two months, mostly on cars and jewelry. Yeah, exactly. Nothing's changed, I can see. And finally, Douglas turned 68 during filming, making him a few months older than Liberace when he died. 
Although played by 42-year-old Matt Damon, Scott Thorson was only 18 when he met Liberace and 23 when the relationship ended in April 1982. You know, it's it, it's interesting you say that because while Matt Damon's great as Thorson, I, without knowing that much of the backstory, it it always seemed to me it should be a younger actor in there. I it just. Just, well, they may, they try and make him look younger. You can obviously tell, but like, I think they intentionally try and keep his his age low key and just give the audience the impression that he's just you know a little young, you know, still living with his foster parents and whatnot. Because yeah. he looks, I mean, and without knowing Matt Damon's real age off the top of my head, I mean. Even with Boy, the de aging stuff, he looks like he's thirty at the beginning of this movie. I mean, I, I'm sorry, he just looks like he's either in his late twenties or early thirties, and it's just a little odd because it definitely like the whole story and performance reads more of like a teenager. So yeah, you know and that's it, what they're doing. I've always felt I mean, that way. And you can see in the makeup and everything that they tried to make him look as young as they possibly could without having to go digital, right. like in a Scorsese film, perhaps. But no. Um, just like I said, they're just keeping the, the age low key without revealing a number or anything like that. Cause I don't think in the film they actually say no. he's eighteen. No, no, they don't. They don't. It okay. would have been laughable if they did. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I remember, and going back to the premiere and that three point five million uh, total. Like I remember it being a big thing, but it came and went. Like I feel like when. Since the film's premiere, and I've been get, I just, I don't know, in, in, in discussions and conversations that I've at least had, like, I just feel like either no one has seen this movie or they're just not really about it in the sense that you and I are, and yeah. hopefully the listeners as well. Because um, it's it's a really good movie, and I, I was just thrilled with all of its success when it first premiered. And I just, I don't know, I felt that it could have had more of a, a longer buzz uh, going for it because it, it just kind of came and went, you know? You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I think the subject and just the way the movie portrays things makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, you know, it, but it's also... Never, it's never bothered me. I, I, you know, to me, no. all sex scenes are somewhat uncomfortable to watch depending on the company you're with, whether it's a man and woman or man and man or woman and woman, you know? So, uh, mm-hmm. to me, like it can always be a little awkward with that. So I, I, I personally don't care. And, you know, I, I just care about good storytelling and good characters and this movie has it. So, but I think that's part of the reason I think automatically there's going to be some people there's like, I don't want to watch guys, you know, making love or guys making out. And I think that's just a very, uh, close minded way of looking at it. I mean, everybody has their own opinion. You know, it's a movie like, you know, people can choose not to watch it. But I think that's part of the reason for sure. Close minded. I'd, I'd say it's also ignorant as shit. Yeah. Um, and and I, I figured by 2013, we'd be a little more past that. You know, um, like I mentioned before, Brokeback Mountain had already come out. In fact, that was a film that had came out eight years prior to this so now we're looking at 18 years of Brokeback Mountain, which I should also remind the listeners was given a bunch of nominations at the Academy Awards that following year. So one side of the perspective is looking at it. The other side's not. And the one the side that's not is obviously the audience. Um, you know, it's not like, it's not like everyone's turning a blind eye, but 
I just be a little bit more open-minded. That's all. <laughs> that's 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 all I can hope for, you know. And I think by now we are at that point. I think if this film came out today, ten years later, it'd be a little bit different. Oh yeah. I think I think we'd still be looking at around about maybe three to four million uh, viewers, but it, it it would have more longevity in, in in terms of just talking communication. You know, just. I feel like whenever I bring this movie up, it's like, what's that again? You know, and I got to be like, oh, it's it's the Liberace movie. And they're all like, oh, ha, ha, ha. It's like, yeah. no, it's, it's just, not like that. <laughs> and and that's one thing I just, you know, it makes me feel hopeful, like, with society. just Because, you know, just in my life or our lifetime, you know, being in our late 30s, like, it's just such a difference between, you know, 10 years ago versus 20 years ago versus when I was a kid. Oh yeah. Um, you know, just using the F word when I was a kid, that was commonplace. That was normal. I didn't I didn't realize how hurtful it was and uh what a terrible word that is. And you know, I never mm-hmm. had a problem with anybody who was gay or anything. It, it was just that was the slang, was slang. We used. It was slang. And, and 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 it was it, wrong. It was just Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. But you know, it, it was just the way people talked. It wasn't just us. It was everyone. Oh, it was everybody. Know? But everybody just, was doing it. My you point can fucking is, say you weren't, but you know damn well you were. You know, at least one point in your life you said it. Yeah, and, and my, you know what it is. Just my point is, like, it just makes me hopeful. I, it, things have gotten yeah. a lot more progressive, and it just makes me happy. I, I just, I, mean, wanna get, I just want to get to a point where everybody can just be with whoever they want to be with and be happy, and nobody has to judge anybody, and that that'll make me happy. You know that that. So I feel like we're moving towards that. It just makes me happy thinking about it versus when we were kids versus to now and hopefully where we'll be in 10 or 20 years from now. We'll be in a good place, a much better place. I mean, it's already started. I've already seen it with, you know, having a daughter, seeing that generation front and center right in front of me, you know, um, and not just her per se. I, I see a lot of the people that she hangs out with, you know, I'm always a chauffeur and for shit. So, and just being around the crowd just because you know gotta be honest you know there are times when i go to the store or the mall or something i I gotta go places too and these people these kids are just hanging out loitering doing shit that we were doing with when we were their age and i see it and i see a lot more flamboyance out there you know a lot more people with open minds and just being free being themselves you know yep it's it's just it's a lot more open now and it's getting it's where it's in, it's in the uh direction of betterness so it's it's nothing to um be worried about at least i'm not personally so anyway the film itself uh first thing old school hbo logo love it you get that late 70s early 80s like a lot of companies do this with their logos. Like we've seen it in movies like Argo with uh, Warner Brothers, and um, yeah, it's a period piece. Yeah. Exactly, I love seeing it here with HBO. It's 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 pretty cool. Uh, it's definitely yeah, makes you feel nostalgic because we're in that we're in that era. In fact, we get told it's 1977, and we got Scott Bakula's Bob Black. He's at this club. <laughs> I love Bacula. Dude, just, he pops that up mustache. Uh, yeah, he's great. Fucking mustache. And just, he's just a good guy, you know? And I'm not sure if Bob Black was a good guy in real life, but the way Scott Bacula's playing him, like, 
he's just a likable person. You I know, know? Like, like the way he's playing this guy. It's like I even at the end when when the, when the the the, the crawl like, you know when they all turn their back on on Scott and shit, and he's part of it. He's there. I. I I'd like to think because just the way he's playing it, 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 like he's not in on it. He's like, "Come on, guys! Like, I I don't want to be here." Yeah, he's a good person. Yeah, I I agree. I I you know, on paper, the the Bob Black character feels slimy. Like it feels like I shouldn't like him, but I just love Bacula too much not to like. Right. Him. So I'm the same. I'm in the same boat. Mm-hmm. So they're they're at this club, and he's got eyes on Scott, played by Matt Damon. And first thing I have here on my notes, the sound design is on point because we see Bob come over and he's talking to Damon or Scott and just the sound design is so perfect because they're playing it off like they're actually in a club. And that's like one of my number one nitpicks in movies a lot of times, like they'll be in a club and they'll just be talking like you and I are talking right now, like in a normal inside voices. And it's like, no. No one talks like that because it's so loud. You have to actually speak up and talk like you're actually in a club. And they nail it here because you see him like talk. They're, they're both communicating like in their ears. And we as the audience can't understand really what they're saying because the music is so turned up. It reminds me of that scene in the social network with Timberlake and um, Eisenberg when they're in the club and the, the music is turned all the way up and you can barely hear what the fuck the two of them are talking about. You know what I'm talking about when they're having yeah. the, the martinis and shit? It's like one of my favorite scenes in that movie. And it's just like this, the sound design. It's just, it's it's key and it's just so well done. So the other, he's, he's they're, they're, you know, getting to know one another and shit. And Scott, we suddenly cut to the next day. Scott's on set at this ranch it's a hot he's a hollywood animal handler or trainer and he's working with a trio of pit bulls for the scene of this movie um we see that it's you know he's, he's putting he's brushing the dogs up with like this stuff so like they're just yeah i'm not a dog handler i don't know what the hell the stuff is but i know what it's for you know it's he's, it's for protection because the guy for the scene they have he's all like He's, he's got the suit on, you know, when I see the suit, like, he's all, he's got three pit bulls about to attack his fucking arm, that's what the scene they're about to shoot is, so we just see Scott, you know, getting the animals pretty much ready for the scene, and they attack him and shit, and you see it all go down, which is cool, you know, it's, it's nice seeing that shit go down, I'm sure it was pretty on point, and, uh, we just see Scott go home for the day after this, you know, and at home, we're introduced to his foster parents. They're at dinner together in the kitchen, in the yeah, in the kitchen and uh, or dining room or whatever. And they mention his biological mother wants to see him, but he's you know hesitant. He doesn't want to. And you know his mom or his foster mom is kind of you know basically like yeah, if you don't want to, you don't have to. You know, don't worry about it. And she also says that someone named Bob called for him. He's all, he lights up, he's all happy, <laughs> and we see Bob picking him up for the night, and we see that Scott hides his sexuality from his parents, so he's closeted. Yeah, they and, know, uh, but they, he hasn't told them. It's one of those things for, uh, right. you know, anybody who's close, you know, but, you know, he just hasn't came out, that's all. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly, you know, 
you know i can honestly say i've never had someone come out where i was like genuinely surprised because it's like it's only happened a few instances but when it has happened and it came out it's kind of like dude i I know you know it's like we all know but you know it's it's, i i'm I'm so proud of you for fucking coming out you know i'm always supportive for stuff like that um yeah just little things like that it's funny to me uh so bob takes scott to vegas in town to see liberace and uh one of his vegas vegas shows and so when this we see him performing and as they sit down and he's already you know on his perform doing doing his performance his first one of the night because he has two and it's it's a vegas show so he's playing for this community of like middle-aged old people. It's old and people, yeah. <laughs> the piano and it, it, that was his thing. And I love how they had for this scene, the way they shot it was they actually had a pianist on there who's doing everything, you know, that they're filming. But Michael Douglas, they digitally put his head onto the pianist's body. It was Philip Fortenberry. That was the name of the guy who's playing the piano in the scene, but it's, he's, he has he has Michael Douglas's head digitally attached. Yeah, and it's pretty seamless. Like I could tell they were doing something with it. I you know I didn't know exactly what, but it looks really good. Like I, it I, looks great. I, you can't I I can't tell personally. I, you know that yeah. this is happening. I you know I didn't know if it was like de aging or what. It, I could tell they were doing something, but it looked really good. Like yeah, there's a little bit of fuckery out. going on. Yeah, you could tell they were doing something, but I couldn't put my finger on it, and it never bothered me. It was just honestly more so just my interest than anything else right. of why I noticed it. But I think any common person watching it wouldn't even notice. And this whole introductory scene is just awesome. Like. You just get such a good idea of like what a performer Liberace was, and you know, and then obviously seeing uh, Douglas, like you know, even though it's just his head, just hearing him, you know, do the part for the first time. I mean, it it, oh, it hooked me in so much, like or, you know, because I was entire show. Yeah, I was excited for the movie, but uh, when this scene happened, I was like, oh man, this is something really good. I was like, this wow. scene's great. The way he gets the, the the whole you know crowd to participate, and the way his mom, played by Debbie Reynolds, is sitting right up front. For, you know, she, we'll, come, we'll soon learn that she comes to all of his shows, but it's just the way he plays for the crowd, gets yeah. them to participate. It's literally a show where everyone's getting their money's worth and you can tell and And you can tell that he cares. Yeah. And it is just funny. Like you hear, uh, Bacula's character and, um, Damon's character talking because, you know, instantly Damon's like, Oh, he's gay. Liberace's gay. And you hear, uh, you know, Bob Black, um, Bacula's character is like, well, none of these people know that. Right. And that just shows you the two worlds that, uh, existed in the late 70s, uh, you know, it just between the straight people and gay people, because, you know, most and I don't mean to generalize, but I think most gay people have pretty good gaydar, like being able to tell uh, oh, yeah. whether somebody is or isn't. And, you know, this is just how oblivious people were back then, like just straight um, middle aged, older, blue collar. Like they just believed all this nonsensical stuff that the PR people would put out about Liberace. His entire straight. team, exactly. And when something would leak, 
they would, you know, go on fucking PR and, and, you know, control that shit, damage control, and make sure that nothing got out, nothing spread. They made sure, and they were damn good at it, too, that they kept the public looking, they they kept the public, you know, knowing, in on as much as they wanted them (laughs) to know. Meaning, as far as they know, he was straight, you know, completely straight, was you know in in fact like in a deep relationship with various actresses and whatnot like whatever the media told them they would buy yep and it worked (laughs) until it didn't so having one of those sparkling suits that must have cost like tens of thousands of dollars back then jesus christ puts rick flair to shame that's for sure It, it does it does so speaking of costume designer and um ellen mirajnik and her team had to reproduce a number of a large number of Liberace's iconic stage outfits for the film. These included a copy of Liberace's 16-foot-long white virgin fo- fox fur coat, which, though made of synthetic fur, was nonetheless like the real coat, studded with a hundred grand worth of Austrian crystals. The originals were too valuable to alter to fit Michael to fit Michael Douglas, so they used only they were only used as set dressing for Liberace's walk-in closet. Many were also extremely heavy due to the large quantities of rhinestones. Each original suit weighed upwards to sixty pounds. Holy shit! So yeah, the real shit wasn't gonna happen. Too heavy for Mister Douglas, but they had they they still found a way to you know get it in there. So it's a lot of shit, dude. That's a lot of stuff, you know, just to wear. So, like I said, uh, this this woman comes in and just just makes stunning replicas of everything, and it, it looks like it came out of the real man's closet it, it, itself. So, oh yeah, I mean, this film looks second to none. Like, uh-huh. I, I mean, everything from the sound, from the production. Uh, from the cinematography, I mean, this is an A-list film. I mean, HBO always does a good job, but this movie is especially a cut above on everything. Yeah, man. I mean, and that's one of the great things about Soderbergh movies. When you watch a Soderbergh movie, you know it's going to look like a fucking million dollars or a billion dollars or a trillion dollars. Why? Because Soderbergh shoots his own movies. So, love it. Uh, then we get this duet between Liberace and his protege Billy Le- Billy Leatherwood, who is actually um, uh, uh, he was based on his protege Vince Cardell from back in the actual period. And this is this is Cheyenne Jackson playing him from Cheyenne Jackson from American Horror Story. Most people remember him from that show. Yeah, nu- numerous seasons. That's what I remember him from. Me this too. Uh, and that. Um. Yeah, and then they go backstage after the show. Um, well, Bob takes uh, Scott backstage. And we're introduced to Tom Pappas as Lee's stage director and choreographer, Ray Arnett. And Cheyenne Jackson, his mean-mugging, resting bitch face while <laughs> Billy's eating his dinner is great. Spot I love it so much. Uh, and Douglas and Damon's chemistry together in this movie, like, it's one of my favorite things about watching this, because this came at a time when I didn't think Douglas really had any more home run performances left in him, to be honest. And then this came out of nowhere and blew me the fuck away. I mean, we got, come on, Matt Damon's Matt Damon. We know that man is capable of fucking hitting 
home runs after home runs after home runs because he's fucking Matt Damon, okay? Let's be honest. Michael Douglas, there was a time when he matched Matt Damon, but then Michael Douglas got old. And let's be honest, let's not pretend like Michael Douglas in like the late 90s to like the early to mid alts didn't have, you know, the most standout career. It, it kind of went down a little bit, but, you know, the, the man... I, I, I don't know. He he just he won me over all over again with this movie. That's all yeah. I'm trying to say. No, I mean, me too. I I think it's one of my all-time favorite performances of his. I mean, I I think it's Absolutely. Oscar-worthy. It's I in my top five, at least. I don't know if he was... I mean, I guess not an Oscar, because it wasn't theatric in the U.S., but I guess uh, an Emmy. I, I don't know if he won any awards for this um, movie, like any uh, TV awards or anything. But Oh, uh, um... It, yeah, it, it did actually. Um, hang on a second, let me pull it up. Because I went through that myself. I was like, oh, what kind of awards did this win? But he deserves it. Like, Douglas. So, Douglas, Douglas won a Golden Globe. He won a Golden Globe for Best Actor. That, I mean, he should, yeah. It, I mean, it's just a flawless performance. I, You know, it, is it exactly Liberace? No, but I mean, just the way he changes his voice. Like, he. The voice. He sounds exactly like Liberace it's just, did. Like, I mean, it's one of those performances, like, where I know it's Michael Douglas, but he just falls away, and all I see is Liberace. It's, you know, like, just great performances like that. Another one that comes to mind instantly is, like, Adam Sandler in uh, Uncut Gems. Like, famous actors that just fall into these roles, and you don't see the actor, you just see the character. You just see Liberace. Mm -hmm. You know, that it, it... I agree. It's just crazy, like, how good it is. And, yeah, the chemistry is spot on with them, too. Like, you know, I totally believe they're falling for each other right here, you know. Because it's very... Uh, it's a good dynamic, too, because Liberace, you know, he's, like, the older father figure. He's also much more flamboyant and looser. And then you have uh, Damon playing Thorson, who's much more reserved, still closeted. You can tell he's not even really 100% on his sexuality, like... You know, well, like, he said he he says that he's bi. He yeah. tells him straight up that he's bisexual. He likes both sexes. Yeah. So, so. but they even like later even Liberace makes a joke like, "Come on, you're gay. Like, stop fooling yourself." You know. Yeah. Like, we we they have that fight about the porno in the bed. And yeah, I remember that's that's oh yeah. There's a whole lot of that that goes on uh, towards the end of the uh, relationship. But uh, I mean, here in the early stages, like you can really feel it. There's something coming on between the two of them. Um, they 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 really make it just so believable. Um, I, I buy into everything 100 percent that they're throwing our way. Um, so there's that. So Bob, he takes Lee or he takes Scott to Lee. That's Liberace Schwartz. We calls him in the movie to Lee's estate, so the two of them can get to know each other a little bit more. I'm so sorry I'm so informal. So happy you all can come. Uh, don't these things belong in an oven? Oh, he's so mean to my babies. I mean, this is my family. And this is baby boy. Baby boy. He's very old. He's deaf. He's blind. I'm a seeing eye person. <laughs> you know, I could get something to help clear up his eyes. Scott works with animals. Oh. Well, I worked for a vet you know, for a while, and we had a lot of poodles with eye problems. Oh, that would be fabulous. No one's been able to help my little baby boy. You know, I hate to see him suffer. And Carlucci, the fucking houseboy, picking <laughs> a blanket. You want to pick it a blanket? Pig. 
What? Picking a blanket. You want to pick in a blanket? No. Thanks. <laughs> like, he's just... His resting bitch face the entire... Oh, that for the duration of, you know, his stay in this movie, for at least for the first, you know, quarter of it, let's say. It's it's great. He's one of my favorite, like... He's kind of like the underground or the underdog in this movie. Um, as far as, like, MVPs go, he's definitely a standout. Yeah, it's he's just... Like, he just stands there, like, picking the blanket. You want to pick the blanket? <laughs> yeah, when I first saw the movie, I didn't know the dynamic. And once you figured out, it makes sense because... It's like this Thorson guy is basically there to take their place. So like, you know, right, his, right. his protege black, but I forget his protege's name, Liberace's protege, but like, and then the house oh, boy, Billy. Yeah. Billy, like it makes sense why they're so shitty towards Thorson. Cause they know Thorson's going to come in and basically replace them. But like, you feel bad. Like at the beginning, like it's just like they, they both do such a scowl towards him it's just so funny it's uh, so awkward because like we start hearing these banging sounds from another room and it's like you got a dog or something and like suddenly it's revealed to be billy who's you know fed up pissed off at you know he's at his wits his wits end and he's ready to go and scott promises lee that he's gonna get special eye medication for his dog baby boy and that's sort of his way in to Lee's personal life that we see coming up. Um, we see more of the tension between Lee and Billy backstage. Lee tells him that he better not get any ketchup stains on his suit while he's eating. And Billy responds with, like, they give a shit. Scott calls <laughs> with the medication and Lee arranges for him to come to Vegas that night immediately. And he's all just overwhelmed to hear from him. So, um... And then we just cut to Lee and fucking Scott alone together in the hot tub, you know, naked, talking about dreams in the future. And they're finally without anyone else being around them. And we see them growing closer. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is it, this one in particular. It's it's, it's good. Yeah. Like it's it, I it, it stands out to me because like Damon does a good job of just being like tense, like because you yes. can tell like. Thorson, he's nervous. He's, he likes Liberace, but he's very nervous. Like, you can tell he hasn't really been in relationships. And they're um, finally alone guys. for the first time. Yep, they're alone now, so there's nobody else to run interference. And yeah, yeah, Matt Damon just does a great job right here, just playing up the tenseness and just not being sure and just being in this whole different world. I mean, this guy, like, comes from a broken home, living on a farmhouse in Southern California. Right. And now he's in like this palatial estate with, you know, one of the, like the richest performers. So, uh, yeah, it's just a really cool scene. This like really uh, well performed by both sides. I mean, you know, obviously Douglas does great here, too. But to me, Damon shines in this scene a little bit more just with how he plays it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, it shit never ends. Lee comes to Scott about Billy and lies says that he's created a monster and giving him everything but now he's out of control and he's ruining his image and giving him the worst publicity that with his you know heavy drinking and non-stop fights problem is he's under contract for the next six months and he also has a wife so there's that so even though lee tells scott that he'll take him back home after his first show he has Scott stay the night with him as they converse with one another while they go, the hours go by. And he also convinces Scott to come home with him. And, uh, come, I'm sorry, come work for him. 
Read my notes wrong. Come work for him as his personal companion to talk to, get people off his back, take care of the animals while he's living, you know, yada yada. And then we see Scott mention things moving fast before they go to sleep, and Lee promises to stay on his side of the bed. So, naturally, we fast forward to the following morning, and Scott wakes up to a morning blowjob from Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Nothing kinky about that. Um, Scott's foster parents warned him about staying with Scott or uh, with Lee, and doesn't. And they they fucking lose their heads when he says he's working for him now too. His foster dad says he worked there, and he knows that all that goes on, and it's not really a healthy environment for Scott to be around. Scott leaves anyway and heads to Vegas to begin his new life, and. uh fucking awkward as hell here because Scott moves in as Billy's moving out. Billy's moving out as Scott moves in and it's one incredibly awkward moment. <laughs> oh yeah. It, it's, you know, it, it's coming to fruition now. Billy was yeah. scowling before, knew what was going to happen and now it's happening. So, and it's just foreshadowing for later because... It is. It's a spinning image. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Liberace... It's just one of those things. Like, Liberace was just seeking a son slash lover like he, he just wants family and just can we be real you know, a, a relationship can we can we be real though let's stop bullshitting this thing he was grooming him all right just oh, call a spade totally. a spade he's fucking grooming him totally grooming him but i think in liberace's mind he wants to keep these guys around forever but we all know what's gonna happen they're young guys that right. it's moving it's too fast forever it, it's exactly. not gonna last but liberace he's gonna get bored with them yeah, it's just the way it is. But I, you know, I don't think Liberace, at least the way the story portrays it, I don't think he was doing anything intentionally. I think at the time he believes he's gonna love, you know, Thorson or Billy or whoever forever, and then obviously it's just not gonna last. So that's yeah, it's I just mean, a cycle. It's also worth mentioning. You can tell a lot of this feels like Hollywoodized, and compared to like the real life events that happen you know like i said it's like billy's not even his real name it's like i said before it's uh what the hell did i say it was um it doesn't matter uh i know i know but for the sake of conversation vince cardell but it's a vicious cycle because we're gonna see this come up later on too like it's kind of like in a spitting image kind of way he he likes him young I, I don't know, but he gets he gets bored with them. He grooms them up just enough, and then he gets bored. And then it's like I said, it's a vicious cycle, and we're gonna learn more about that coming up. So, but hey, man! In the meantime, we're introduced to Dan Aykroyd. Oh yeah, as his manager Seymour Heller. It, it, oh my God, this fucking guy is a treat. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd is hilarious in this movie. He's great. He is, like, born to play this type of role now. Mr. Thorson! <laughs> My name is Seymour Heller. Yeah, it's, it's... I chuckle every time I see him in this movie. Especially, uh, we'll get into the scene later. But it just yeah, makes yeah. me laugh every time. Uh, so much. I love this fucking Seymour character so much. And just Dan Ackroyd's portrayal is just... It's a 10 out of 10. There's something to be said about the number of references to food or eating in this movie so far. Yeah, I, 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 had, I had to put that down. Uh, after we briefly see Scott and Lee getting intimate in bed together, we see Lee telling Scott how they're going to go shopping the following day. And then Scott asks Lee how he's been able to go four times already since lunch, meaning four times in bed together already. 
Um, it's a sex term, kids. He's claimed that he's had enhanced work done and he's got the stamina of a bull. Scott admits that he's bisexual in this part and he likes women too, which Lee takes in stride. He's sympathetic, informs him that he wanted to and tried to love women, but was exclusively attracted to men after losing his virginity to one in Catholic school. And then we see Lee relating the story of a divine healing in which a messenger informed him that God still loved him after it was discovered that his suit that he was wearing on stage was being dry cleaned with this tetrachloride solution that would make him sweat and it would all absorb into his bloodstream and shut down his kidneys. And then after he says Kennedy's assassination, he figured he could take some time off from performing, but Seymour still made him play. And that's when he was placed or um, he was admitted into the hospital and placed on dialysis and no one knew what was wrong. He then laid on his deathbed, he says, and started talking to an angel. And then the next day he was better like a fucking miracle <laughs> yeah it's just crazy story i mean it it's a dude it's what, another scene that i love so much is this one here it's the scene is just so fucking out there but like makes sense yeah i mean i totally believe liberaji would tell a story like this and it actually right. happened because you know god knows what kind of chemicals they were using back then to dry clean <laughs> And the amount of sweat that probably poured out of him wearing these like 50, 60 pound suits, you know, I, mean, I, totally I just love the it. visuals that are, you know, so, uh, accompanying all this, like that we get to see in the movie. Like it's, it's, it's uh, all in all, there's just so many great ingredients to this scene that I just really like. I'm yeah. a big fan. Um, so we get a montage of Lee pampering Scott and taking him to various tailors as well as jewelry shopping around fucking montages baby come for the film <laughs> stay for the montage and then it's Christmas time at the Little Raji residence while swimming in the pool this is where Carlucci sets Scott straight after he requests a fresca he made you a pesto panini oh did you uh, did you bring my fresca What? Here's what's gonna happen. You listening? You think you're so hot and sexy with your hard ass and that bisexual bullshit. You know how many there have been? Bobby, Hans, Chase, oh, and some country boy stripper who was so dumb he wore his G-string backwards. He got rid of all of them. But I'm still here. And one day, Lee is gonna call Seymour. And he's going to tell him to get rid of you. He brings him a lunch and shit. He's like, what about my fresco? And he just, he's like, fuck this. I'm tired of this. And he kneels down and tells him that he's no different than the rest of all the young men that Lee brought back and gotten tired of, except for him, because he's still there. He then tells Scott that one day Lee is going to call Seymour and have him get rid of Scott. This is when Scott marches inside, looking for Lee pissed off like he's ready to fucking go and then finds him without his wig on and he's like fucking thrown off he's like, <laughs> yeah he's like stopped in his tracks because he's it, like yikes it threw me off too because i was like Whoa, yeah me too me too i'm not I, gonna I was, lie i was not expecting that but you know it i can i can understand scott being upset like imagine living in a house where like there's just a guy scowling at you 
and like basically <laughs> muttering "fuck you" all the time because like you're taking his place. Like, it, right? It's very uncomfortable, I would imagine. A little bit, yeah. And then he tells Scott that he's gonna put him in charge of his wigs. And <laughs> <When> Scott <laughs> tells him that he can't do this anymore. He's like, everyone looks down on him, and even Carlucci treats him like the houseboy. Lee takes this personally and assures him his happiness means everything to him. And then we cut to Seymour handing Carlucci his undisclosed severance check that he folds up and places into his pocket as he's getting up and leaving. And then we see Scott showed up, dressed up as uh, Lee's chauffeur at this show. And this, to me, is when Scott's downfall begins. Like, there's no sign of trust. When we see the two having sex... We see Lee approach. He's reaching out for some poppers. And Scott's like, no, I don't want it. There's just a lot of turmoil going on between the two of them. And this is kind of like where the relationship peaks. And now it's all downhill. Pretty much. Uh-huh. So Lee take, he tells uh, Scott to take, take some money he's making and buy himself a nice house in Vegas. Which Lee agrees to co-sign on because he wants to be his everything. His father, brother, companion, everything. So Lee tells Scott that he'll be his real family, which seemingly makes Scott happy, while also leaving us feeling awkward. Yeah. So Michael Douglas, man, I just want to talk about him. This Michael Douglas, his legacy and the job that he does Liberace, those two things. Because Michael Douglas is the fucking Mac Daddy. I mean, Wall Street. I mean, that's all I can say. It's all I have to say is Wall Street. Gordon Gecko, one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, mine's always been uh, falling down. I, I just falling love down's falling so good. Down. Yeah, it's I just love the whole concept. I just love the whole feel of that movie. I just feel like disheveled and hot, and like I'm losing it watching that movie and watching him <laughs> yeah. in it. Like, and another underrated one, uh, the Fincher film, The Game. I, I love The Game. Uh, I, think that's one I, of I just watched that last was- year, actually, um, for my second time. It's a yeah. good movie that asks a lot of the audience in the end, but I still enjoy it. Yeah, I always I always liked the premise, and I, I really enjoyed Douglas in that film. That was kind of like, I hadn't seen him too. in anything in a while, and it kind of was like a reintroduction. Kind of like this film, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. welcome back. You know, but yeah, Douglas is great. I mean, he, he's been around like, uh, like even Romance in the Stone. Like, I, that, that was another good one one of the first things i ever saw him in was a 1979 film with jane fonda called the china syndrome it also had jack lemon that was one of the earlier roles that i remember him from it's it's still a really good movie and then the 80s came in like you said he did romance in the stone uh jewel the nile fatal attraction wall street black rain war the roses and that was just the 80s Uh, war the roses yeah i love that movie that is that is such a pitch perfect black comedy i Oh yeah, yeah. It just him and Kathleen I, Turner again. I'm a huge DeVito fan. Uh, when DeVito's behind the camera, yeah, War of the Roses is no exception. That movie's awesome and just so odd but enjoyable. Speaking of candelabras, the fucking chandelier at the end that they're both on top of, like that's got a dark ending. That really does. But Douglas, man, I mean, like I mentioned before, between the mid to late '90s until like maybe this and Ant Man which were both around the same time like his career for better or worse was just going into a direction where kind of like people like DeVito and not DeVito um uh De Niro and Pacino went like um certainly not at the rate of Bruce Willis and 
the direct-to-video films that he puts out, but uh, or used to at least. But it just wasn't a good, you know, all things considered. I mean, I know in that time period he still put out films like Traffic and Wonder Boys that got a lot of critical acclaim. But then he also put out movies like Don't Say a Word and The In-Laws and The Sentinel. Films that just weren't good. And then Ghosts of Girlfriends passed. And then that's all I have to fucking say to remind everyone that, yes, even Michael Douglas goes through a fucking funk. Um, but like I said, around this time, he came out of that funk. Uh, you know, films like this and Ant-Man, of course. And Ant-Man really is what he's done for the last decade. That's all he has to do is just fucking play Hank Pym. And he's set for the next for the rest of his life pretty much i mean, I mean he's what's probably... he in his mid-70s now i mean yeah i don't blame him oh uh, yeah he's, he's he's um how old is that guy now i got his profile up right here 78 and you know he's got Catherine zeta jones and he's got three kids of his own so you know it's it's, it's that disney money's or that uh that marvel money it's it's gonna get circulated so anyway back to the film while watching tapes of older liberace shows Seymour calls Lee to get him to do shows after Thanksgiving for double the pay, (laughs) which he doesn't want to do because it's too much. And then, like, Scott, he's he's chiming in. He's like, hey, Scott, why don't you mind your fucking business? Get the phone back to Lee, huh? Hey, I just love, yeah, (laughs) I love Aykroyd's delivery. I love the look on Damon's face. Like, uh, it's just played to perfection. And it, it is true because, like, I'm sure this Seymour guy, like, he's just used to it. Like, he's used to dealing with Liberace's latest fling interfering right. with their business, you know. They all whether, are. Whether Shit. Scott's right or wrong, like, he's interfering with business right now. So, I, I, I it's hilarious. It's one of my favorite uh, scenes and one of the funniest just because I, I just love when they're hanging out. Like, when uh, Damon and Douglas are just, you know, hanging out, just acting up a fucking storm. And then now you throw in... Dan Aykroyd, like, it, it's just, you feel the love between the two characters in right. scenes like this, and then, yeah, it throws in a little bit of comedy. It's just so good. God puts Carson on, and Lee freaks out over his appearance, saying that he now looks like his father. Enter Rob Lowe. <laughs> Shows. Dude, he, stealer. he steals the show playing General <laughs> Surgeon <laughs> Jack Starts. Just the look on his face, like, Jesus. you know, he plays like this, you know, typical California plastic surgeon who's done a bunch of work on himself. And just the look like on Rob Lowe's face, like a plus, like, I just love the way he just stands there and stares off into fucking space at the end of the scene. Just makes me laugh. Face pulled back so far. The California diet, like just the way he talks to California diet. Totally safe. His like expression. just the way he talks. Like, yeah, Roblo steals. Uh, what's he in two or three scenes? But he steals he's a every bunch, scene. dude. He's awesome. great. I love that guy. Oh my god. Um, yeah, he's he, he's enjoying this role as much as Dan Aykroyd's enjoying his. I gotta say. So he, he wants a more permanent face implant than his last procedure, and on top of everything, he also wants Scott to look more and more like a young version of Lee. Now, Jack, I want to talk to you about doing some surgery on Scott here. What? Fine. What would you like me to do with Scott? I want you to make Scott look like this. Can you do that? Oh, I see. 
Oh, yes, I think I can do what you want. He's going to need another job. And I'm going to have to restructure his cheekbones and his chin with silicone implants, but it's not impossible. But first, we got to slim him down. I have a terrific diet, the California diet. Guaranteed loss of 15 pounds in four weeks. So we get Scott to go under the knife as well with him. And then, yeah, talking about this California diet, which I looked up. It's a concoction of daily diet pills that will make him lose 15 pounds in four weeks. It's That's speed. pretty much. He's basically it's, getting like speed. Yeah, it's drugs. It's, it's obviously because he grows an addiction to it. So in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Rob Lowe described the makeup uh, regimen used to transform him into the heavily plastic surgeon Dr. Jack starts. It's tape pulled back behind my head. It's literally what they used to do in the early days of cinema before they were doing facelifts for actresses. You know, Joan Crawford, her whole career was this. You tape, you pull around the back of your head, but you have to wear, you have to have a wig because it covers the elastic. We did that. And I'm also wearing a dental piece that and then I'm doing a couple of things, a couple of tricks with my own face, the way I'm holding it. Then, of course, the makeup is literally, <laughs> literally like Eric Sheeb, auto body paint sprayed on my face. It was actually really painful because being pulled that long and that hard for a 12-hour day, it gives me migraines. We shot during the summer. It was unbelievably hot. The wig being pulled, it was definitely not the most comfortable experience physically for sure. All in all, the process took just under two hours each day. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't comfortable, uh. but it looks like hilarious. Like, and you can tell Lowe is definitely hamming it up with the performance. Like, he he does a great job. He, he's great in the scenes. I I laugh my ass off every time I see him watching these films. Even when I know it's coming, I still laugh. Same here. Um. So. <laughs> police procedure he's now unable to fully close his eyes and i swear <laughs> to god it is the funniest goddamn thing in this entire film the scene with scott sleeping and he turns and lee's snoring and he's got his out. eye open staring at him like half twitch like not twitch but just like half open and like it's fucking hilarious because he's like a it's a real thing it freaks it, him out it's a real thing like so i looked it up after watching the movie because i was curious that is a real thing. Like people, especially back during like this time in the eighties, like people couldn't close their eyes. That's why you would see right. uh, like people like this wear a sleep mask, you know, cause that's the only way they can get darkness. That's just crazy to me. Yep. Same here. Um, so now it's Scott's turn to go under the knife In his pre-surgery. He's prescribed this ridiculous amount of medications he also wants a dimple on his chin. What Jack says Lee wants to have a... Jack says Lee doesn't no have dimple. a dimple. And this starts a whole thing about a simple dimple. So, yeah. So we get these very graphic shots of the surgery taking place with intercut shots of this recovery while Lee's performing again to his crowd. And the shot of Jack's eyes as he's hammering Scott's nose also kills me. It's fucking looking this way, and he's fucking hammering this troll into fucking Damon's nose. It's hilarious. Yeah, and I think these scenes are important, like, right here, because it really sells, like, this is insanity. Like, I'm sorry. If my wife came to me and was like, I want you to get plastic surgery to look more like whatever, 
it's just insane like i felt i feel so bad for scott thor so like that the fact that he actually went through something like this like it's just nuts to me and like just seeing the severity of what's being done to him having his face chiseled like and then later you know um you know thorsten even says it he's like i lost my fucking face like i mean it's just crazy that he had this surgery just to appease uh liberace like it just kind of makes me a little sick to my stomach like thinking about that like you know it's 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 one of those things it's like too crazy to be fictional like it 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 really happened you know it's just nuts it's just got now we see him working backstage like this toy guy of sorts and he's showcasing stage worn clothes and old programs to these old women that are paying to see all this shit and one of the women mistakes Scott for Lee's son, since he now resembles him as much as he does. And Debbie Reynolds, about this point, comes back into the film as we start focusing on Lee's relationship with his mother. And their chemistry together here, it's, it's like it's the right kind of chemistry. It, it feels like a legitimate mother-son you know, relationship that I'm witnessing between these two. Yeah, totally um, believable. Absolutely. And then Lee and Scott, they start... They're you know, they're starting to bicker and argue more and more. And Lee wants them to go out together and do things like, you know, often, more often. And he's feeling trapped inside the house 24-7 and needs to get out every once in a while. But Lee takes everything he's being told entirely the wrong way. Lee chalks this all up to Jack's prescriptions, which he tells Scott he wants him to stop taking. And Scott tells Lee about the woman who mistook him for his son. And that, you know, seemingly makes him so much happier. A lot of back and forth. We're starting to see the two of these guys fighting out more often. The honeymoon is definitely over between Scott and Lee. So, um, yeah, this is where the downfall begins. And uh, let's start in 81. Lee's mother's playing her slot machine inside of the room while talking to Scott about personality and luck. Suddenly, speaking of luck, she wins nothing. Because <laughs> she wins and nothing comes out. Both of us are twin. Really? He never told me. Oh, yeah, but the twin was born dead. But Walter, 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 he weighed 13 pounds. <laughs> Even in the womb, he wanted more than anyone else. <laughs> Ah, what's a mother to do? She loves the child more. Now the world must give him what he needs. God, God gives us the power. It's not luck. It's who you are. (gasps) I win, I win, I win, I win. I look, 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 I win. Lee! 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 What, what is it? She won, but there's no money in the machines. Oh, for Christ's sakes. I don't have any change. She won big. Do you have anything? Gladys, you have any cash on you? So, Ma, this is all we have. But, but look how much I won. No, I know, but we don't have any more cash. But, uh, okay. Okay. So I'll take a check. I know, just the way uh, <laughs> Debbie Reynolds plays it, she's like, where's where's my winning? Where is it? Like, 
And I just love when they're like, Ma, and, you know, um, Douglas playing Liberace is like, Mom, we don't have any money. All we have is like a hundred bucks. And I'll take a check. <laughs> I just <laughs> love Debbie Reynolds. Pitch perfect right here. She is great as uh, the mom. It's just so funny. I, I can totally see like just a crazy elderly woman doing something like this to her son. <laughs> it's just so funny. Cut the Scott paying Jack and jewelry since he doesn't have much of a cash flow going on right now. And Jack continues to bullshit him about, you know, into taking them. So Lee's in bed watching a porn and picking a fight with Scott about sex because Lee has a drive that Scott apparently can't handle. And he wants Scott to be the leading end of things, if you know what I mean. And Scott reminds him of his bisexuality and says that, that he's not into that stuff. How does he get that whole thing down his throat? It's bigger than his head. It's a freak show. I don't know how you can be gay and be such a prude. I'm bisexual. Well, which half likes women? I haven't met that half yet. You know, you're such a booper. Such a party pooper booper. I don't even know why you need that. I don't need it. I enjoy it. It enhances it. Sexuality is something beautiful. Right, so how can you watch those disgusting things being done? Disgusting is in the eyes of the disgusting. There's nothing wrong with any part of the human body. It's all God's creation. God didn't make certain parts for certain things. It's variety, Scott. It what keeps a relationship fresh. You know, you, you are such a prude. I am not. Then why won't you let me fuck you sometime? Forget it. Why not? Because I don't like it. Why? Because it's kind of repugnant. I'm repugnant? No, not you. It. That. Doing that. Oh, only when it's done to you. Yes. I can't help it. Well, you never tried it. Because I know I wouldn't like it. If you loved me, you'd try it. If you loved me, you wouldn't ask me to do something that I oh, hate. Oh, God. Oh, all of a sudden, we're sounding like a gay Lucy and Ricky, you know? Oh, Ricky, you wouldn't fuck me up the ass if you really loved me. Why am I the Lucy? Because I'm the band leader with the nightclub act. This is all going on, and he's a lot of finger pointing, and he hates the fact that, you know, he's bisexual, so is that as well, and... Yeah, so then we get this scene where they're out in the town in the limo, Lee and Scott, and they go into this porno shop, and then to the back, where the booths are. Scott's so tweaked that he stumbles to the back, where Lee's in a booth, and just starts puking all over the floor. <laughs> yeah, and we see like Lee funny. pop up his head, and he's like, what are you doing? Ah. Yeah, and it's just like... You know, you get the feeling Lee's just kind of like a little out of control right here, just going out like to a place like that. But, you know, this is the days before social media. And, uh, you know, I'm sure paparazzi was around, but I don't think it was nearly as prevalent. So but yeah, you feel like Lee's definitely just being a little bit uh, reckless right here. Next morning, Scott wakes up on the couch with his clothes still on. And Lee tells him that he kept them there after the way he looked and 
He accuses him of being on junk, and Scott retaliates with Lee being caught seen in public like this while he's paying to keep the tabloids out of his sexual life. And he vows to stop then and there, and he swears that he won't do it again no more. But Scott has to stop seeing Dr. Jack starts. So I love this reaction. I love the, the way Douglas in this scene, he's like, You're right, you caught me. I swear I won't do it again. Yep, I promise. He's like, But you gotta make me promise you're not gonna see Dr. Dr. Jack starts anymore. Another example of just uh, the way that the, the character is portrayed here in this scene here by Douglas. It's, it's great. He's really in his own element in this part. I love it so much. So backstage at yet another show, we see Ent- Nikki Cat enter the room as Mr. Y. who turns out to be Scott's secret coke dealer. And Y is actually there for the money that Scott owes him. Not to see Lee, but to actually see Scott. Scott says he can't pay him in cash, but he can pay him in jewelry. And we also see Lee with some young fans on the other side of the room kind of mirroring the way that Scott was introduced to, to Lee at the start of the film. Yep, it's all so. coming back around. Bang, bang, bang a rang In the hot tub, Lee proposes that the two of them start seeing other people while still remaining together since they can't be uh, in a good place. They can do it while staying in, you know, in the same place and loving one another. Scott's hesitant, but agrees to it. It's one of those things where like, you can tell Scott really doesn't want to do it, but it's like, what else is he exactly. going to do? Because Liberace will just be like, well, fine, then, you know, like, Peer pressure. I'll just kick I it the curb. Yeah, we cut to Lee and Scott fighting more and more. Accusations are being thrown around and personal digs ensue. And everyone in Lee's entourage, they they stop talking to Scott. And Lee's looking for his latest new fan to uh, essentially groom, like I said, and that's where... Boyd Holbrook comes in as Carrie James, who's been shown around by Lee while Scott's in a jealous rage, the same way that Billy was at the first act. And uh, yeah, Scott picks a fight with about about this Carrie person and the two while they're in the hot tub together. Um, and Lee says that he's just an opening act and can come and go as he pleases. And Lee then accuses Scott of being on drugs again. And... Lee gets up and leaves because he's seeing Seymour in the morning about the Academy Awards presentation that apparently is going on that they're planning together. Scott brings up his music and asks Lee if he's even listened to it, which he denies. This prompts Scott to tell Lee that he doesn't want Carrie around anymore. And Lee then says that he hasn't been interested in sex because Scott's always on drugs and can't keep it up. He's like, it better stop, is the way he says it. Uh, So Lee's meeting with Seymour featuring a pissed-off Scott leaving to go to L.A. for the afternoon, but he'll be back in time for the show. After no response from Lee, Scott storms out and heads to Mr. Y to go on a pissed-off coke place bender. Now he's going to use me. Use me up and toss me out. I know he is. I know he is. That is not rigged. I love him, you know. That was not rigged. I love him. I mean... Been my whole world. My, my, he's my best friend. He's been better, better than a father. He was gonna adopt me, you know that. Really? You can mm-hmm. adopt someone you're fucking? That's a great law. He said he always wanted to make sure that I, that I was taken care of. Right. Well, look, I mean, you're practically married, right? Nobody ever took care of me the way, the way, the way he did. I mean, I have nothing without him. 
I don't even have my own fucking face! My fucking face is fucking gone for fucking ever, man! Hey, hey, tranquilo, okay? Calm down. Look, I mean, you're practically married, right? So he should take care of you in the style to which you were accustomed. That's a law, too. I'm in the will, but, you know, a lot of good that does me hey, now. Hey, being with him is like a full-time job, correct? 25 hours a day. Yeah, so, so uh, three words, severance, all right? People who get fired get compensated. He's my whole world. And it's during this bender when the wives tell Scott about getting a severance. And, you know, this scene, it's really heavy and like adrenaline race because they're going through a lot of blow. <laughs> These two. Nikki Cat oh, yeah. and Matt Damon are just fucking going on and on, banging, banging, banging lines to the point where, like, I'm surprised their fucking heart hasn't exploded yet. They're just going through it. And they're, like, talking about, like, like Scott's coming clean about everything that's happened between Lee and him. And he's pretty much, you know, admitting to everything that Lee has done. Because, again, everyone perceives Liberace as this straight icon. Which is couldn't be further from the fucking truth. So, Scott's kind of, like, leaking all this to his dealer. Because he's so fucking co-placed out of his mind. He can't control himself. He's trying to talk to someone about something. Hence this. Um, you know, and I, I, I want to talk about the yellow-colored palette that Soderbergh chose to represent the movie behind. Like, the color palette's definitely yellowish color. It gives the picture, like, this golden look that's pretty fitting for a film centered around Liberace, if you ask me. I don't know if that was intentional or if yellow is just more of a prompt look for period pieces like this for the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I don't know. It's just an observation that I noticed and wrote down. Um, it's not really something I pay close enough attention to when I normally watch movies, but this particular viewing, it, it, I, it I noticed it. <laughs> so, I had to write it down. Um, anything you want to add before we move on? No, not really. I mean, I, I see what you're talking about. I mean, I think it okay. fits the movie well. Alright, cool. Um, so, everything's now come full circle now like i said we have carrie more or less being the boy to replace scott scott's on the verge of getting kicked out kind of like billy was when they first met that all goes downhill starting with this scott's step or uh, foster mother rose has passed away he gets a call from his foster father and he heads to la to to help him out and he leaves behind and understanding understanding lee um he was going to take a train, but Lee books him on a private jet. And before he leaves, the two appear to have finally worked things out. And they agree to be nice to one another. So, we cut to Scott returning from this week-long trip. And he finds that, once again, he's being ignored by everyone at the house. Except for Bob. Except for Scott Bakula. Nice guy, Bobby. <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah. It's just kind of a shitty thing right here. Like, I, this scene you know, whether, sucks. I gotta admit. Whether Scott was being a shithead and being on drugs and all the issues, the fact that his like foster mom passed and he comes home to this, like, it's hard not to feel sympathy for him. Like, it, you just feel so bad. It's just such an awkward scene. And like, yeah, Thorson like 
or Matt Damon's character Thorson acts like a child here and destroys stuff. But you know, I, if I was in that situation as a young uh, man, I probably would do the same thing. Like, I, it's just such a terrible thing that happens, and yeah, you just feel for Thorson right here. It's just yeah, really shitty thing. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, Bob. Bob's nice. Bob's nice <laughs> to him. He's the only person. And uh, he asks Bob what's going on and if there's something that he should know about. Bob then reveals that Carrie ended up staying the night before. And this prompts Scott to go absolutely fucking ham on the joint. Oh, uh, there's two things I forgot to mention uh, before that we I kind of glossed over two scenes. Uh, one, we saw Scott earlier paying Jack for uh, he's paying him back for his medications and jewelry because he says that there's no cash flow. So you know the things are kind of you know dipping into the jewelry department now. He's uh, kind of going through some shit. We see the kind of Scott just getting deeper and deeper into that decline that he, he eventually really gets himself in. And another scene that happens not long after that that we uh, that I, I, I forgot to mention was uh, the death of Lee's mother. Because his sister Angie calls in the middle of the night and this is when uh, Lee tells Scott that he's now free after he comes back from the funeral and all that. So those two things happen. That's all. I just wanted to mention them real quick. Uh, back to where we were. Scott's on another coke-fueled bender with Y. Says that he's going to call him he's not gonna he's not he's like i'm not gonna call lee but then he does and he threatens him and shit he's like i'm not gonna call i'm not gonna call him he's like, well then don't i'm not <laughs> you piece of and he's shit. like you piece of shit you motherfucker i'm gonna fucking he's like fucking threatening him and everything it's hilarious <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny actually even though it's not supposed to be um and then scott's half brother wayne shows up he comes to help seymour get scott out of the house yeah you see michael malley too yeah and uh, it turns into somewhat of a barricade situation because he's so bonked. And then he even threatens to call the mafia and have him buried. <laughs> yeah, he threatens to get a gun. Mr. Schnelker, this is Scott Thorson's brother, Wayne. Half-brother. He's here to help us. Now, as I said on the phone, Lee wants you to inform Mr. Scott Thorson his employment has been terminated and he must vacate the apartment immediately. Also, if possible... We'd like you to convince Scott to admit himself to a hospital for treatment at our expense. Dorothy, June. Mr. Heller, he's on the couch. Stay by the elevator. Wayne? Scott? 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 This is Tracy, private investigator. He's... He's come to ask you to leave. Get out of my house! Get it! Get out of my house! I only came to help. I'm fucking get you out. He's going to get a gun. Has he got a gun? He has two. Don't let him get the guns. Let's go, brother. I wish you would call the police. Scott, if you would take advantage of our assistance, I'd be happy to call a doctor and we could help you. 
Just shut fucking shut up! Do you want me to help you? Shut up! Back off! I will fucking hit you! Hello, hello, hello. Uh, yes, I want the, uh, uh, I want the... Scott. Uh, who the fuck is this? Scott. Fucking do it! I will call the fucking mafia, and they will come here and, and bring you to the desert and fucking bury you! Stay back! Scott! Scott! I want to talk to Lee! I want to talk to Lee. That's not going to happen, Scott. You know what? Fine. If this is how he wants to handle this kind of situation, then I want to leave. But I am taking all of my personal belongings with me. All of them, Seymour, or I will fucking sue you. Listen, you have my word. If you vacate the apartment now, you can come back during the Academy Awards. And I'll have all your belongings ready he's for like, you to pick runs up. into his guest room, and that's where the other gun is. And he's like, I'm not leaving until you talk to Lee. And he's like, Seymour's like, it's not going to happen. And he's like, get out of my house. Get out. He's like, just wrecked. Like, this is just Scott at his all-time lowest. And yeah. it's, it's sad to see, but it's also funny in portrayal. It's one of those catch-22s. So Scott ends up leaving after Seymour promises to leave his belongings for him while he's at the Oscars. So him and Y go back to pick up this thing, pick the things up. They're all in black trash bags. Then they go back to Y's to watch the awards performance as Scott has this realization that it's finally over. And then we have a time jump to 1984 and Thorson's $100 million palimony will all suit starts where he gives details about his romance for five years with the entertainer while Liberace obviously denies any sexual relationship with Scott. And we see that Paul Reiser is Scott's attorney, Mr. Felder, while one of the attorneys he's speaking with is played by Randy from that 70s show, which is Josh Myers, Seth Myers' brother. And uh, were, you, were you a big fan of that final... 70s show season with that character Randy who replaced no, Toby I hate or, uh, Randy. Topher. No, he's like the worst character ever. Like, <laughs> yeah, I never, so I never got that character. Yeah, they just brought him in to replace him. I know, I know, I know. It's just you could tell. I just think that, that was just times were tough for that show, and it was on its last foot. So I, I love that 70s show. I gotta watch um, the new one, the the 90s show. I've heard some pretty good things about it. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen it myself, but I hear good things. I, so. I want to see uh, Kurtwood back. You know, I want to see I some more Red Foreman. Red. Yep. So I mean, we're still blessed to have his presence still today. So let's uh, take advantage of it while we can, I guess. So uh, in the end, Scott is only awarded $250,000, but he has to return everything he claims he was entitled to, but also has to sign the agreement first. And his lawyer... Paul Reiser flat out tells him that he's a drug addict and that this is all he's going to receive. Which let's let's say by the way too, like, yeah, it's not millions of dollars, but like two hundred and fifty grand back in eighty four, that's a lot of money. That's like I know, but just you think about it, it, that's close to a mil probably. But he nowadays. was suing him for a hundred million and he only got you know that 
I, I know what you're saying, but what I'm trying to say in, in return, it's not quite what he was going for. But, you know, in your case, it's still something. Right. But this scene has always stuck out to me here because when Paul Reiser says, you are a drug addict and you are getting nothing more than this, sign the damn paper. Like, it's an eye-opening moment um, that has always stuck with me. And I don't, I don't know if it's because of the fact that it's Paul Reiser just being as open and blunt as he can be with this character, or if it's the fact that, yes, Scott, you know, speaking from a personal sense, you know, you got to reach that rock bottom. And this was that reveal kind of that, like, it, it took all this. It's, it's unfortunate, but I feel like this was the real eye opener here when he's only awarded thus amount. And Paul Reiser is just like, look, you are a fucking drug addict. And this is all you're going to get. So deal with it and uh, hoping for the best, buddy. So sometime later, we see Scott working as a mail clerk when someone comes in with Liberace's book. And that prompts, that prompts Scott to pick up the phone or pick up the book for himself and uh, to see, you know, what all was written. So according to chapter three, he lost his virginity to a beautiful woman named Sonia Henny that he never mentioned before because clearly he's continuing to hide his sexuality from the uh, public eye. And at the end of the shot, we see a newspaper article revealing the death of Rock Hudson from AIDS. So we're in the mid-80s and AIDS, that, that, that was a major thing. That major yeah. AIDS, you know, pandemic and all. December of 86, Scott receives a phone call from Lee. Does not sound good at all. It's rather heartbreaking. Revealing that he's not in the best of health and he would like to see him one last time. So Scott agrees and he drives to Liberace's retreat house in Palm Springs where the two of them have one last emotional conversation while Lee is on his deathbed. And he also gives Scott one of his rings to remember him by. It's both a tough and emotional scene to witness because the two or between the two because after you know all we've seen them through in this movie and now it's it just comes to an abrupt end Liberace passes it's it's revealed that he passed a few months later in February of 87 and it's revealed to the public that Lee died of heart failure but his death certificate gets rejected and even against Seymour's wishes an autopsy is performed by the state who announced that he actually died from complications from the AIDS virus. So now the public eye knows the truth. Yeah. Cause, because cause back, cause back then, you know, only homosexuals got AIDS, even though it's not the truth, but to everyone, truth, that's to, 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 to the human eye, to the common public back in the 80s, the ignorance, if you will, uh, that's what they saw it as, you know. Yeah. You had to have AIDS. You had to be gay to have AIDS. That's that's the way it was perceived, yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just so interesting. Like you see, backwards uh, thinking. Yeah, you, you see Dan Aykroyd's character Seymour like still fighting for Liberace, even though oh, he's yeah. passed on. Like still just trying to protect his name. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just until like you know at the very end. And yeah, I really enjoy the last scene uh, that Douglas and Damon share together. Like the makeup they do with Douglas, like, ah, oh my gosh, it's like so good. Like, I mean, he uh-huh. just looks like on his deathbed and, you know, you can tell like they've obviously had animosity, but they still have, you know, there's, they still cared for each other at one point. So 
you know, you, you can definitely tell get that love. in the scene. There's still yeah. love, absolutely. Um, so Scott attends Lee's funeral in which he imagines seeing Liberace performing one last time with his traditional flamboyance before being lifted to heaven with a huge heart with a stage harness. dream to be better far than you are to try when your arms are too weary to reach for the unreachable star this is my quest to follow that star no matter how hopeless no matter how far, be willing to give when there's no more to give. Be willing to die so that honor and justice may live. And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest, my heart shall lie peaceful and calm. I'm laid to my rest. Thank you. Thank you. You have made me piano player who has ever lived and no matter what I still believe and always will too much of a good thing is wonderful revealed that before he died, Liberace played 56 sold-out shows at Radio City Music Hall. He made his entrance flying above the stage, and then it says Scott Thorson currently resides in Reno, Nevada. And that... Very fitting ending. Yeah, It is. is 2013's Behind the Candelabra from Steven Soderbergh. And that's going to bring us now to the categories yeah no box office receipts for obvious reasons so we're gonna get to the uh we're, we're right at the top taking a walk to the Chris corner to see what they had to say about the movie So it's quickly worth mentioning the film was watched by 2.4 million people when it premiered 
A further 1.1 million tuned in to watch the repeat immediately after. That's where the 3.5 came from. It was the highest rated premiere since 2004, like I said. Rotten Tomatoes score of 94% based off 108 reviews with a critical consensus that says affectionate without sacrificing honesty behind the candelabra couples award-worthy performances from Michael Douglas and Matt Damon with some typically sharp direction from Steven Soderbergh. It has a meta score of 83 out of 100 from 30 reviews. Um, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian awarded it 4 out of 5 stars and said as a black comedy and as a portrait of celebrity loneliness behind the candelabra is very stylish and effective and Matt Damon and Michael Douglas give supremely entertaining performances. Um, Mary McNara from LA Times gave it only 2.5 out of 5 saying Soderbergh is clearly captivated as are we all by the rot underlying the glitz but even with Douglas's nuanced performance the film simply simplifies too many things which i don't agree with i think the film does a good job of enhancing many things and going into detail and pulling back the curtain and giving us a view of things that normally you wouldn't have seen before or knew about i i learned a lot of things coming out of this movie to be honest with you a lot of things that happen behind the scenes a lot of things that happen in real life that were portrayed in this movie but you know how movies are i mean a lot of films have a tendency to just like i always call it hollywoodize things and you know and, and heighten certain sequences to make it you know more rewarding for the watcher as opposed to just how it really took place it happens and that's how i feel you know this movie does a good job anyway uh so matt zoller's sites from the new york magazine and vulture said whether the biopic behind the candelabra ends up being a swan song for director steven soderbergh it wasn't or merely the last entry in one phase of a long career it's an impressive work um chris cabin from slant magazine and one of the co-hosts from we hate movies gave it three and a half out of four stars saying behind the candelabra is powerful funny and emotionally rigorous and though it might act as a fiery and uh forceful resignation it also serves as an uncommonly heartfelt john dear dear john letter <laughs> dear john john dear it's fucking a dumb and dumber line i know michael <laughs> and finally letter. no 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 shut up uh that's yeah you know, the, the reviews are basically for the most part rewarding you know the, the the critics uh the majority of the reviews that i read at least um gave this movie it's it's rightful review that it deserves so you know the critics liked it and that's all that matters i guess for uh people like soderbergh i don't know let's move on then to what we thought of the film in the form of pros and cons before i take on any job i look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Pros. Start with the pros. Um, Corey, why don't you go first, brother? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to love about this movie. I mean, first and foremost, the performances. I mean, 
you know, at the top, Matt Damon and uh, Michael Douglas, just awesome. Like, just like I said, Oscar worthy or Emmy worthy, whatever you want to say, Golden Globe worthy, uh, just both on top of their game and so believable. I mean, they, you know, especially Douglas just falls into the character. So uh, and also just like the little performances, like with Rob Lowe, I just love Rob Lowe in this movie. But uh, the cast and the performances, uh, obviously my first pro. Uh, my second one is definitely just the production of this film, just the set design, the costuming, um, just everything just looks spot on in this movie. You could tell uh, a lot of thought and work went into just like Liberace's house and oh, yeah. the shows and the costumes. I mean, this this film, for lack of a better term, looks like a million bucks. And obviously, I know it was a lot more than that, but uh, yeah it's definitely the money's up on screen. You know, you watch some movies, you're like that costs $200 million. Holy shit. But then you watch a little movie like this and you're like, wow, like they had to really do a lot of stuff for this film. So just, I, you know, I'll just roll it all into one. Like the, per, you know, just the costuming, the, the sets, just everything just looks spot on accurate time. Uh, you know, just like the period piece part, just everything just looks fantastic in it. And then uh, my final pro is just the writing. I know it's based on a true story, but uh, just the script in general, I think, is really good. I think it balances, uh, you know, the relationship and just showing the love and caring and also showing the fighting and having the comedy mixed in. And it just feels believable. Like, uh, you know, all the characters feel real. Like, I understand everybody. I, you know, I get everybody's motivations. I just think it's a really good script and just really well done. So, uh yeah, the writing is top notch to me. So uh, those are my pros. Uh, real quick, the you, talk, you talked about the uh, production design and the location like, for Liberace's like, mansion and all. That was actually Zsa Zsa Gabor's mansion that they used for uh, filming. It was very fitting. <laughs> Forgot to mention that. So yeah, all right, pros. Um, there we go. Pros for me, Sitterberg. His cinematography talked about it before in the, in the episode. Just love it. It's it's like I said. He shoots his own stuff for a reason. He does. He's one of the best. He's one of the best DPs. Always has been. Always will be. Um, so and this is another reason why the performances all around. I mean, you can sum it up. You you can nitpick here and there, but I think to sum it all up, everyone does a just standout performance there's not a bad role in this movie honestly i can't think of a single portrayal that's just eh. no none of that not in this movie it's just everyone is just fucking banging out tens it's it's great the realism behind the making of the film is another thing to mention they do a really good job of just a, a paying attention to small details um Everything from, like I just mentioned, the location, like I said, using Zsa Zsa Gabor's mansion for, uh, in place of Liberace's, which is, a, you know, pretty much a stunning carbon copy, and I'm sure someone like Zsa Zsa Gabor just, I can't imagine her moder moder modernizing her mansion. Probably looks like the 70s back then when they went in there. Um, but yeah, everything's just so realistic, and it, it makes it... it it, it, it feels like the era that it's in um, and the story itself it's it's one that I feel was worth telling honestly so those are all my pros bunched up in the one um, 
We can move on to the cons now, Corey. How about you? Where you at with the cons? Uh, I mean, I'm digging pretty deep for this one. <laughs> you know, I think it's a Me pretty too. perfect film. But uh, and I mentioned it previously. I always just felt like Matt Damon. Obviously, he's awesome in the movie, and his acting is spot on. But just the way the character's written, like I think he's a little too old. It, definitely, like the first time watching it, it was a little bit off-putting. I'm like, are they trying to make Matt Damon look like he's 20? Like, I, it just something didn't quite seem right, and it stuck out from the first time I watched it. So if I was going to put any con, it would be that. Like, maybe Matt Damon's a little old to be in the role. Maybe, like, a younger actor in there. But it's Matt fucking Damon. I mean, he just gives a great performance. So, like, how mad can I really be? You know, so, like, that that's my only con. Like, I, to me, it's, like, a near-perfect movie. I, you know, there's really nothing major that sticks out that's wrong to right. me. Yeah, I'm reaching too with my one con. It's just some stages of the relationship could have been developed better, but that's just a very minor gripe. Again, I, I, I didn't even have to include that, but for some reason I did write that down. But it's very minor. It's it's almost non-existent. So, yeah, okay. We're on the same page in that department. That's good. All right, we're going to move on then to one of our newer categories now. One question, no answer. Do you have any other questions for me, counselor? Wouldn't one look at Jack Stard's... <laughs> just wouldn't one look at him be the deciding factor on whether or not you wanted to go through with all that cosmetic work? <laughs> like, I know for me, like, all it would take is one initial look, and I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Like, he's got this, like... It's just... It's it's poor surgery going wrong. Like, and it's done on his, himself. His own face is, like... a fucking reminder to everyone why you shouldn't get that work done but you gotta go through with it you gotta do what Lee's gotta do that's all so, do you have any questions about the movie Corey? <laughs> my my only question is uh, like who did the plastic surgery on Rob Lowe's character on the doctor <laughs> like I just want to imagine that scenario like the other doctor that has like a plastic surgery face does it to is himself talking- to Ro- Rob Lowe's doctor character. Like, they yeah. both are just staring at each other with a fucking blank plastic faces staring at each <laughs> other. Like, I wish they would have put that scene in the movie. Like, but that's my question. Like, where does, um, I forget Rob, I forget the character's name, the doctor. Jack but- starts. Jack starts. I, where does Jack starts go for his plastic surgery? Like, that's my question. And how many, how many surgeries has he had to get that face like that? I just, that it's just something I thought of, like, just so funny, like, because obviously he can't do it to himself, so where is he going for his plastic surgery? He goes to the same place where Tim Allen goes for Botox from Christmas with the Cranks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. All right, well. Oh, recasting call. Another one. No, dickhead, of course I could. A nutless monkey could do your job. Well, I don't... Now go get drunk and... Take credit at all the parties. I would never do ah. that to you. Yeah, this one was fun because I actually have one that I believe in. So I gotta find it though. Yeah. Um I honestly I can see a world where Robin Williams is Liberace. He was still around. It might have maybe shifted his career towards the better. Not that Williams had a necessarily bad career in the end, but it could have always been better. He could have enjoyed the spotlight, maybe racked up a Golden Globe or two. I 
I don't know. I just I was thinking about this for some reason for maybe a longer than I should have been thinking about it. Um, and I just looked. It, 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 he just came to mind. I was like, oh yeah, Robin Williams. That would have been something. Like I can definitely see Williams doing Liberace. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. But that's my casting call or my recasting call. Yeah, that that's a good one. I you know I can see that. I, I wouldn't say you're crazy on that one. Yeah, it would have been would- awesome. That would definitely, um, yeah, that, that would be interesting to me. Um, you know, like, one I thought of, and I don't know if, like, the timing-wise, because this is ten years ago, but I was just thinking of a younger actor to put in the, uh, you know, Matt Damon's role, just because I think, you know, age-wise, it would have worked better. And just one that popped into my head, I've always been a big fan of his, is, like, Jesse Plemons, like... Maybe he would be a good a good hmm. in there as like a Scott Thorson character because he's definitely a lot younger. I think age wise, he would have fit in there better. Now, obviously, I'm not gonna just say like you know Matt Damon's a better actor, Jesse Plemons a better. I mean, Matt Damon's definitely the more famous, and more accomplished. But uh, I don't know, just like someone just a little bit younger, and Jesse Plemons just popped into my head. Uh, maybe because I just watched um, what was the. Benedict Cumberbatch movie, the Oscar movie that uh, he oh, was just in. Um, the Jane, the Jane Champion movie that uh, came out a couple. Of, no, the God. power of the power of the power of the dog or something dog, like that. Yeah, yeah. I I just watched that recently, and, and maybe that's why he's kind of popping into my head. But yeah, I was like Jesse Plevin's like ten years ago. I think maybe could have pulled that uh, Scott Thorson off, like. You know, as a younger character, so that that was mm-hmm. kind of be mine. I, I think that could have worked out pretty good. All right, well, that's it then. We can move on then to Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? All right, absolutely nothing. I I I I wouldn't dare change anything about this movie. So, are you in the same boat, or do you have something you would yeah, change? Yeah, same. Same here. I wouldn't change anything. I, I figured. All right. Then with that being said, we can move on to finger licking good. It's finger licking good. Uh, the final scene of the movie. It's packed with such raw emotion and the feels. And it's like the most fitting ending to the story. Douglas is as authentic as the character here as he's been the entire film. And I think it's the perfect send off for Lee's legacy. It's what he'll be remembered for or be remembered best for and that's his performance and i fucking love the way soderbergh ends this so very much although i do have a runner-up and that's the scene where the two of them go out for the night on the town scott gets sick and lee's in the booth mocking him it's just a funny scene i've always dug this i've always liked it because it's like the two of them even though it's just at the height of like scott's drug usage it's i don't know i've always think about this scene for some reason the way he's trying to get out he's trying to make the initiative to go out with him and make Scott happy but when he brings him out Scott ends up being the one fucking it up for everyone and getting sick and they all gotta go home suddenly so I don't know it's it's a scene that stands out that's all there's nothing great about it but there's nothing bad about it either it's just a scene that eh, I think about so how about you Cor where you at on this one yeah it's tough for me there's so many scenes I like it's one of those movies where uh you know, like certain certain movies just have scenes where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's definitely my favorite where this one just has so many good ones. It's tougher for me to pick. I mean, narrowing it down, I like um, 
when Matt Damon and uh, Bacala go to the first performance, see Liberace for the first time. Uh, I really like that scene because it's just such a good introduction to uh, Douglas playing Liberace and Liberace's character. Right. Uh, so that's really well done. I really enjoy that scene. Um, and I really like the ending. I, you know, I just, yeah, the funeral and, you know, watching Liberace ascend. Like, that's all really well done, too. I think that's a pitch-perfect ending. But being honest, my favorite is just the scene where uh, Scott and Lee are just chilling out on the couch watching old tapes and then Seymour calls. I just love that scene because it has the relationship. You know, they're kind of both letting their hair down, just hanging out at Liberace's house watching old tapes. Liberace's talking about, like, I was the first on TV to look into the camera and I was, you know, the first to do this (laughs) and just bragging about his TV career. Right, right. And uh, it was that was just interesting. It was just cool seeing the two characters letting their hair down. And then obviously, you know, the dead Aykroyd comes in for just the the whole like the funniest part in the movie to me uh, other than Rob Lowe. So, yeah, just that scene would probably be my favorite. Like it just, yeah, watching them hang out on the couch and then uh, being on the phone with Seymour. Next up, we got... Oh, movie MVPs. All right, movie MVPs is next. All right, now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. The most valuable player is... Dude, both Damon and Douglas deserve this one. Together, they go... They're hand-in-hand. They're... Not one does, does the other. I think they're both memorable as all hell. I think they both own this movie... I think Scott Thorson and Liberace together um, as portrayed by these two amazing one-of-a-kind actors is just um, it's 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 some seriously some seriously great chef's kiss type shit so um, definitely these two for the win how about you where you at Uh, I mean yeah obviously it has to be one of the two or both but uh, you know for me Michael Douglas just, I don't know, he steals it to me. Like, yeah, Damon's great in the film. Like, he has more of an mm-hmm. understated role. And uh, he does a really great job of playing, like, that, you know, just playing a naive young guy and being uh, uptight about his sexuality. Like, does it pitch perfect. And then all the drug stuff, he's really good with that, too. Like, he actually looks like he's on coke. Um, So, all that is great, but just... <sighs> Douglas just mesmerizing to me. I I just love his performance. I mean, it's just to me, it's just one of those. Like I said before, he just gets lost and the performance becomes Liberace and it's just pitch perfect. Like I can't imagine, uh, you know, anybody else doing it any better. Like, you know, it's just, yeah. An all timer for me. So Douglas has to get it for me for my MVP. All right. Well then we got the final effect rating. On a scale of one, on a scale, on a scale, on a scale of one to ten, on a scale of one to ten. Give me the damn veggies. What do you think? Time to wrap this up with our ratings, final ratings. I'll go first. I've been hyping this up, building this up as a perfect film, near perfect at least, but I'm still going to give it four and a half stars. Uh, My only mild issue with the film is... That certain eras feel rushed, but not too rushed in the sense that it's just a movie and not as many series. So I should be thankful that I at least got that, you know, what I got. So, um, yeah, being thankful for what I got is uh, definitely the way to go. And in the end, this movie definitely satisfies me. It's got some 
incredible performances. It, it's got an engaging plot. Um, it's got incredible replay value. I come back for this film. All, I come back to this film very often. Like I said, I watch it every couple of years at least. And um, yeah, as far as uh, HBR standards go, I mean, they can do no wrong. And this is just one of many, many, many endless examples of that. So yeah, four and a half out of five is my final rating. Yeah, I mean, I'm not too far behind you. Uh, mine's going to be four out of five. Um, yeah, like I said, near perfect movie. I mean, my biggest complaint would just be like you said, I would just like a little more, you know, and right. it, it's that. tough for me. It's tough for me to defend them making the movie like, I don't know the runtime, but, you know, it's tough for me to defend them making it like two and a half or three hours. But I would have liked a little bit more relationship stuff thrown in there, too. Uh, you know, I, I think it does a good job at the beginning of the relationship uh, and at the very end. But in the middle, I think it could have used a little bit more, in my opinion, maybe an extra scene or two. But that's just me nitpicking. Like I said, four out of five, uh, you know, all time performances. The cast is stacked top to bottom. Uh, everything, production, costumes, excellent direction. I mean, Soderbergh, I mean, he's great. He, he's awesome. And he does a great job with this film. I mean, it just looks like a million bucks it just looks like period perfect it just looks beautiful like it's just really appealing to watch like even right. the first trailer i saw for this movie i was like oh wow that looks really good like instantly without knowing anything i i, I knew exactly when <laughs> the movie was supposed to be taking place so uh just really well done like there's really nothing major that stands out i mean just every facet of the film is really good even like the score i mean a lot of work had to go in to the performances and the scoring and especially the musical number at the end like it's all just really great i mean you could tell like just the the accuracy and detail that went into everything to make everything period accurate and just do justice to liberace you know like i obviously had questionable personal life but i mean right. just a hell of a performer i mean just an yeah. all-timer and i just enjoy this movie like just looking back to such a different time where people could believe that a man like Liberace <laughs> was straight. Like, it just blows my mind. You know, I, it, you know, I grew, you know, we grew up at a time where everybody knew Liberace was gay. But, you know, you think back to the 70s and before that, like, it's just he was just hadn't found the right woman yet. So it's just crazy, like, looking back on that and this film kind of dissecting it. But, yeah, I love the film. It's one I'll keep watching. Uh, one of my favorite HBO films of all time. It's kind of like the end of an era because when this movie came out, that's when streaming, obviously streaming had been around, but, mm -hmm. you know, streaming kind of took over after this point. And now HBO pretty much pours all the resources into series because that's what gets people to subscribe and stick around to, uh, you know, a max subscription, not a movie so much. Because when you look at it, it's like they don't really make as many movies anymore, like the big movies like they used to. And that's just because... You want people to stay subscribed to what keeps you around longer series, you know? So it's just an interesting thing to me. It's, it is almost kind of like an end of an era, but you know, it's a movie I always enjoy, I always love and always keep rewatching. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of our episode on behind the candelabra, a film that definitely gets that 100% full film effects seal approval one down. So many more to follow. Please check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes of the show if you haven't already. 
as well as all past ViewerCast episodes over at the archive on all major podcast platforms or directly at our website, thefilmeffectpodcast.com. If you like what you heard from this or any of our other previous Film Effect breakdowns, then please make sure you're following us on the socials for all the latest news and announcements for future episodes at Film Effect Pod on Twitter, the Film Effect Podcast, everywhere else. And yeah, let us know what you thought of this episode by leaving a simple rating or review via Apple, Spotify, Facebook, leave us on email or directly at our website, which again, thefilmeffectpodcast.com. Uh, real quick, we have a new email address. Um, it's it's the same thing as our Twitter handle. Uh, it's uh, filmeffectpod at gmail.com. That's it. And uh, kick off your weekends with an all-new episode of Cast every Friday. And if you're not familiar with Cast, it's our Film Effect Weekly Entertainment Recap Podcast where myself, Corey, and a few other Film Effect co-hosts get together, break down, go over all the latest news and stories of the entertainment world for the week, as well as hang out shoot the shit talk with one another we're gonna start doing topics of the week to kind of engage more in conversations so it'll be really fun we'll be bringing that back uh next far this coming friday because the show's been on hiatus for the last couple months and uh yeah it's a really fun show where everyone just gets to be themselves so please check it out when we come back if you haven't already done so and until then Corey, thanks for being my co-pilot on another edition of the podcast and Thank you to everyone for listening to our Behind the Candelabra episode. Till Friday with ViewerCast, I'm Ed. And I'm still Corey. And this is still another episode of the Film Effect Podcast. Carry on, my wayward son. See ya! And remember, the California diet, totally safe. It's over. Go home. Go.